The year is 1987, and American TV networks launch a number of short-lived shows, such as Starman, The Popcorn Kid, and Probe. In a fit of midlife nostalgia and an effort to remind the world of shows they have forgotten, lone podcast pilot Chris Cooling steps into the forgotten TV studio 30 years later. Remembered to obscure TV memories of the 70s and 80s, including short-lived TV shows and made-for-TV movies, this is Forgotten TV. Welcome to Forgotten TV. I am your host, Chris Cooling. Just a reminder that Forgotten TV can now be heard on the Audible mobile app, available on iOS or Android devices, in addition to Stitcher, Podbean, and most major podcast platforms. This is an independent, listener-supported podcast. You can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and become a producer of the show. All the ways to support are right here in the show notes, are easily seen at Forgotten.tv. This episode of Forgotten TV was brought to you by executive producers Joshua Driscoll, Will Welton, and Doc Pinko. The DVD used was provided by listener Kenneth Taylor. Thanks to all for your support of Forgotten TV. The 1970s. An era certainly remembered for bell-bottoms, sexual revolution, Rocky, Star Wars, and the rise of disco. But for many, it was also an era of inflation, economic struggle, cultural and political controversy, crises and change. This is not an invasion of Cambodia. The oil-producing countries of the Arab world decided to use their oil as a political weapon. We must ask everyone to lower the thermostat in your home by at least six degrees. Gasoline shortages are spreading across the country. Odd even service, gasoline lines, and closed gas stations are becoming increasingly common. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. I, Jimmy Carter, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute. That I will faithfully. It's no wonder that in this turbulent decade, prime time American television viewers often sought out programs that provided a comfortable respite from modern daily life whether it be period family drama, 1950s nostalgia, or the everyday relatable comedy of the workplace. TV comedies and lighter-hearted fare were certainly in demand. 
It was the success of TV sitcoms in particular that contributed greatly to the rise of network ABC from third place struggler to number one by 1976. In the following year of 1977, seven comedies showed up in TV's top 10 shows. And one of the biggest names in the sitcom world at the time was that of Gary Marshall. Gary Marshall was a wisecracking kid from the Bronx who, as a young man, facing the potential of the draft, enlisted for two years of service in the Army. And due to a fib on his enlistment application that he was a television cameraman, ended up making training films for the armed services in the late 1950s. On everything from demolition... Demolition work is standard operating procedure. It has been for generations. ...to VD. Well, Corporal, the test shows gonorrhea. Following his stint in the Army, he and friend Fred Freeman found some success writing material for stand-up comics. Deciding to try their talents on the West Coast, they moved there in 1961, where they started their Hollywood careers writing for The Joey Bishop Show. Through a series of industry contacts, Marshall ended up writing a charity skit, Pro Bono, for Lucille Ball, and now with new writing partner Jerry Belson, found themselves writing for The Lucy Show, followed by The Dick Van Dyke Show, as well as the now-obscure Hey Landlord, all in the 1960s. When the opportunity to adapt a Neil Simon film for the small screen came along, Marshall and Belson pounced. And for the first time, Marshall found himself not only writing for, but running his own show, from his new office at Paramount Television. The Odd Couple hit the air in the fall of 1970. The success of this series led Paramount and ABC to give Marshall the opportunity to create another TV comedy, based on a segment he had written for Love American Style, originally titled Love and the Television Set. Oh, he had tried before. The first attempt at this series had been a rejected pilot he had done for the network in 1971. However, in the two-plus years since ABC turned down that first pilot, 1950s nostalgia skyrocketed. An increase in oldies radio stations, a popular Broadway play named Grease, and a little movie by none other than George Lucas called American Graffiti had all hit the scene. And it didn't hurt that Ron Howard, lead actor in the new series, had come to national attention in a lead role of that film. So, Happy Days debuted January of 1974. And soon, ABC had Marshall cranking out one series after another throughout the 1970s under production studio Paramount Television. Gary Marshall's Happy Days spinoffs like Laverne and Shirley. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, Shlemiel, Shlemazel, Hassenbeff Incorporated. Lansky's Beauties and Mork and Mindy, as well as sitcoms from other creators and lighthearted and escapist fare, absolutely filled ABC's 1978-79 TV schedule. Yes, Marshall found himself somewhat of a victim of his own success and under constant pressure from ABC to create spinoffs from his hit shows. They had great success with pairing Happy Days with Laverne and Shirley in the same hour on Tuesday nights until the latter show stood on its own when moved to another night. 
According to the often repeated narrative, when his new sitcom Mork and Mindy became a nearly immediate hit in the fall season of 1978, ABC wanted him to create another show to go along with it on Thursdays, which would replace What's Happening that had entered its final months on the network. Marshall teamed with regular cohort Dale McRaven, who he had worked with on several of his shows as far back as the Joey Bishop days, and took a story element from an unproduced pilot script that had been intended as a Laverne and Shirley spinoff, as the seed for this new series idea. The story on what that unproduced series was, we'll talk about later in Behind the Scenes. Marshall's general concept for this new series was that of a modern Cinderella story, revolving around a coffee shop waitress. And for this new project, Marshall and McRaven would take more of a backseat and turn things over to Miller Milkus Productions, who employed several additional creative forces we will cover in full later, but especially writers Alan Eisenstock and Larry Mintz, who began work writing a series pilot and developing the concept into a series. However, Marshall had already selected the lead role, a young actress he had seen in Saturday Night Fever caught his attention, and he even waited for her availability when she initially passed due to another commitment. That actress was 24-year-old Donna Pescow, who would fill the role of coffee shop waitress Angie Falco. The story Eisenstock and Mintz wrote revolved around the wealthy Benson family and their reactions to family member Brad courting waitress Angie and the culture clash with her working-class family. A pilot was shot and screened for ABC, but was rejected by the network. One reason given for the failure of this initial pilot was they felt the male lead role had been miscast. As sometimes does happen in television, a second pilot was written, and all the roles were recast with the exception of Donna Pascal and one other actress. The story was slightly reworked to focus more on the family of the working-class Falcos, and especially on the character of Angie. Among the newly cast, 31-year-old Robert Hayes in the role of Brad Benson, a young doctor that comes from a family of wealth and position in Philadelphia, where the series would be set. Doris Roberts would be Angie's mother, Teresa Falco. Deborah Lee Scott, younger sister Marie, and Sharon Spellman kept her role from the first pilot as Brad's sister, Joyce. We'll consider the cast members at length in the next segment. After ABC saw the second pilot, they ordered a half season of 12 episodes. In late November, the network started announcing mid-season replacement series that would start showing up in January. NBC, headed by new executive Fred Silverman, who had just jumped ship from ABC, announced Super Train, Cliffhangers, and Mrs. Columbo among their mid-season offerings. CBS would add the now-forgotten sitcoms Miss Winslow and Son with Darlene Carr and Billy featuring Steve Gutenberg as well as a new show called The Dukes of Hazard to their mid-season lineup. ABC would announce three new sitcoms that would debut in January, Delta House, an adaptation of the Animal House feature film, Making It, a disco-flavored show undoubtedly instigated by the success of Saturday Night Fever, as well as a new show that would feature Donna Pescal as a coffee shop waitress who marries a wealthy and socially prominent Philadelphian. 
In February, a critical sweeps month for TV networks when advertising rates are calculated, ABC began promoting the show, with network promos voiced by Ernie Anderson during their Sunday night movie presentation, a double feature of The Bad News Bears and The Way We Were. The show would be titled Angie. Thursday, Angie premieres. Yes, yes. And she'll steal your heart. Angie premiered February 8, 1979, following Mork and Mindy, Against the Waltons on CBS, and the short-lived Little Women over on NBC. Now let's take a look through the series' run, stopping at notable plot points, guest stars, and other tidbits. Episode 1, The Proposal, introduces us to Philadelphia coffee shop waitress Angie Falco and her potential suitor, pediatrician Brad Benson, who works in the medical center across the street. Well, is there a chance that you might want to go out with me tonight? You know, it's funny. You've been coming in here for the past couple of months, and every day I've been hoping you'd ask me out. I just figured you couldn't afford it. So I was even thinking about asking you out. Why didn't you? Well, I didn't want you to think that I was pushy or hard up or desperate. You don't have to worry about that, Angie. I never would have thought that. Thanks. What time do you want me to pick you up? Angie comes from an Italian working class family and lives with her mother, Teresa, who works at a newsstand and younger sister, Marie. Hi, Angie. Marie, go to work. Take a sandwich. Angie and Brad begin officially dating and find they like each other a lot and may even be in love. But there's just one thing Brad hasn't shared with Angie. He comes from a family of wealth, and this threatens to break up the relationship. You know the term filthy rich? Yeah. Well, we're disgusting. However, the two end up expressing their love for each other, and at dinner that night, he proposes and she accepts, even though he's not Italian. This initial episode also introduces us to Brad's sister, Joyce. Tonight? Costume party? Yes. I'm going as Jackie Onassis. I hope she doesn't come as me. And Angie's friend, fellow waitress, Dee Dee. Oh, hi, Brad. Is Angie around? She's in the kitchen. She's a little upset. Yeah, I know. I've been calling all day, but she won't talk to me. Relax. I know Angie. She doesn't stay mad long. Deep down, she's a sweet, soft pussycat. Angie! (laughs) In episode two, Wedding Wings, Teresa tries to overcome her fear of flying to visit Brad's family and meet his father, played by longtime actor John Randolph. He played Dr. Hoagland on Lucan. 
Angie is introduced to Joyce, and viewers are introduced to niece Hillary. Hi, Angie, I'd like you to meet my sister, Joyce. Oh, how do you do, Joyce? This is uh, my niece, Hillary. Hiya, Hillary, kid. So, you're the little girl who has stolen my brother's heart. <laughs> Brad, we have to talk. Fast. <laughs> Mommy, is this what you meant by a greasy dive? <laughs> We also see the recurring gag of the six-foot Mr. Benson picking up five-foot-one Angie whenever he greets her. In The Elopement, endless meddling by family caused Brad and Angie to decide to elope. Their car is stolen and are married by the sheriff, who also happens to be the justice of the peace. In The Morning After, Angie and Brad struggle to tell their families they eloped arrange a meeting between the Benson and the Falcos, and neither side takes the news well. We're trying to say, Mize, uh, we're already married. We eloped. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> no. No, not wonderful. I should describe it as uh, sleazy, tawdry, sneaky, shoddy, furtive, bizarre, tacky. But hardly. Wonderful. Mommy? Uh, hush, child. Never interrupt Mommy while she's making a scene. In episode five, The Adjustment, Angie adjusts to married life, which includes quitting her job at the coffee shop and hiring a maid, while Sister Marie takes her place at the coffee shop. But when a life of leisure doesn't work out for Angie, Brad buys the coffee shop for her, making Angie the boss. A side note on this one, I couldn't help but notice Brad and Angie have a vintage, majestic brown and cream-colored Filter Queen canister vacuum cleaner, the same model our family had for decades growing up. And if you take careful note, you'll see actor Donnie Most as an extra in the background in the coffee shop. In Teresa's Date, it's Angie's mother's birthday, and John Randolph returns as Brad's father, Randall Benson. As a surprise to all, Randall and Teresa go out on a date. In The House Guests, Angie's mom and sister are evicted from their apartment and take over the Benson house, interrupting Brad and Angie's honeymoon plans. Episode 8, The Opportunity, has Angie's incompetent sister Marie looking for work, and Brad, needing a new receptionist, is put in the difficult position of having to offer her the job. In Joyce's job, Brad's stuck-up sister Joyce's ex-husband is broke, and she is forced to get a job instead of depending on alimony, and she starts working in a dive bar as a singer, and the whole gang is there for moral support. John Randolph returns in his recurring role. Character actors Richard Karen and Nedra Voltz also appear. The six-foot-one Karen was a regular on 70s and 80s TV and film with his trademark frizzy hair, mustache, and chest hair. Nedra Voltz started acting on film at age 65 and owned the little old lady character throughout the rest of her life with her roles on Alice, Different Strokes, The Dukes of Hazard. The Fall Guy, and so on. Nine episodes in, and we see the interaction between the characters start to gel as Joyce and Daddy Benson get more fleshed out as characters. Brad and Angie have their first married spat 
when he goes out for the night with old friends in Episode 10, The First Fight. Actor Stephen Johnson appeared in this one. He was married to actress Sharon Spellman, Joyce on the show. This episode again focuses on the original Different Worlds concept of the series we'll explore in a bit. Also, starting with this episode, CBS started airing Time Express against ABC's Mork and Mindy, Angie Hour. Time Express was an extremely short-lived time travel show starring Vincent Price and wife Coral Brown and was considered on Forgotten TV, episode 21. In Angie's Good Deed, coffee shop waitress Dee Dee's boyfriend has broken up with her and married another woman. Angie's idea of setting her up with a blind date backfires when Dee Dee quits and Teresa has to fill in at the coffee shop. The 1978 film An Unmarried Woman is referenced in dialogue. This Paul Mazursky film starred Jill Clayburg as a wealthy New York City wife whose stockbroker husband leaves her for a younger woman. The film was nominated for a couple of Oscars and was included in AFI's 100 Years, 100 Cheers list of America's most inspiring movies. And in the season one finale, The Checkup, Teresa isn't feeling very well, and Angie convinces her to have Brad administer her first medical checkup in 20 years. But her health issues take backseat to the news that Marie becomes engaged. Following Mork and Mindy on Thursdays, Angie was a hit for ABC, ranking the fifth most popular series of the 1978-79 TV season, with a 26.7 Nielsen rating. It was thus a no-brainer that it was renewed with a full-season 24-episode order for the fall of 1979. Angie was specifically called out along with Mork in new Fall Network promos. A new opening segment for season two was filmed, and they dropped the actors' heads appearing in Love Boat-style portholes in favor of more traditional full-screen clips of the actors reacting in character to various situations and concluding with Brad and Angie on the observation deck of the City Hall Tower. The characters of Hillary and Dee Dee were dropped without explanation, leaving the remaining core cast of five. However, the show was moved to Tuesday nights following Happy Days, the first of four time slots ABC would move Angie around to in its second season. Those following along on Wikipedia should note most of the air dates listed there for Season 2 are incorrect. Season 2. In Episode 1, Angie's Old Friends. Angie's efforts to keep her new financial situation a secret from a visiting group of old friends is complicated by the arrival of their new butler, Phipps, courtesy of Brad's father. Emery Bass was the sardonic Phipps and would appear in 16 second season episodes. He had played Mr. Best in Dark Shadows, the Grim Reaper himself. Although he worked up to 1994 in a string of roles in guest spots, Angie was his longest-running regular acting role. While Angie's friend Dee Dee was seen in a couple of season two episodes, the character was replaced with a trio of friends Angie had known since high school, all named Mary, who would appear in recurring roles in eight episodes in season two. Valerie Bromfield was Mary Mary, 
Susan Duval was Mary Grace, and Nancy Lane was Mary Catherine. In The First Separation, before Brad has the leave to give a presentation at a convention, Angie's criticism leads to a misunderstanding that has to be resolved when he returns. The oft-mentioned coffee shop cook Hector is finally seen, played by Richard Beauchamp, later seen in Zorro and Son and Hunter. And Adrian Zemed appears as Marie's disco-dancing friend Maxie, who shows off his dance moves with Angie. Zemed would be seen in three episodes, and he is probably best remembered as Officer Vince Romano on 72 episodes of T.J. Hooker. In Moving Day, Angie goes house shopping and puts a deposit down on a more reasonably sized but still upscale fixer-upper townhome. 45 minutes away from Brad's downtown practice and the coffee shop. But what will it mean when they have an hour and a half daily commute, and when Brad has to leave the only home he's ever lived in? The Three Marys make a return, and an eight-year-old Jeremy Licht appears in this one. He would later show up as the powerful Anthony in Twilight Zone, the movie, and was Mark Hogan on Valerie. Eileen Fitzpatrick begins appearing as Julie, the sometimes seen nurse that works at Brad's doctor's office. She would show up on five episodes and has appeared in supporting roles on TV and film from 1975 to 1995, often playing a nurse or saleswoman on Grady, Eight is Enough, Lou Grant, Cagney and Lacey, and the films Gotcha, Arthur II, and Communion. Oh, and I must mention she was the all-too-permissive mother of Almanzo and Laura's nephews, Myron and Rupert, on Little House on the Prairie. And on Angie, will a convent be Marie's new home? I'm in love with my sister's husband. Boy, the following week, Angie has to deal with Sister Marie developing a crush on Brad. And as a result, Marie considers joining a convent in Marie's Crush. Helen Page Camp guests as Mother Janet. She was a regular TV guest actor of the era and would regularly play a nurse, nun, or schoolteacher. And a throwaway line referred to Lenny and Squiggy, who were characters on Gary Marshall's other show, Laverne and Shirley, a show Robert Hayes had guested on back in its first season in 1976. After a three-week break, Angie returned October 23rd with Episode 5, The Gift. It's Angie's birthday, and a surprise party brings Daddy Benson to briefly pop by with the gift of an expensive fur coat for Angie, which is almost longer than she is. This triggers feelings of resentment in Brad, since his father has always bought his way out of spending time with him. This episode uses the plot device of a mink coat, something I noticed was used in a lot of sitcoms growing up. Lucy and Ethel used to constantly ask their husbands for mink coats on Isle of Lucy. In the Love American-style segment, Love and the Fur Coat, when a working-class man's mistress demands a fur coat, his wife ends up getting it instead. And even All in the Family gave in to this trope with the episode, Edith Gets a Mink. While historically a symbol of status and glamour, Fur coats have largely fallen out of favor in recent decades, and people that inherit them wonder what to do with grandmother's mink coat.
Also, in an obviously dubbed line added later, Brad mentions his doctor's office is now located in the attached downstairs unit at the townhouse where they now live, meaning he no longer commutes daily to downtown, but occasionally does have to appear at the hospital in the city. Hold on to that thought for a bit. The following week, Brad and Angie are fed up with everyone continually coming over unannounced, and even their pretend weekend vacation is interrupted by a burglar. But when he turns out to be a childhood friend of Angie's, what will they do about the thief? Peter Scolari makes a very early appearance as the burglar. This was before he became known on Bosom Buddies the following year. And we have Daddy Benson showing up for the first time at their new house, even though he had been there last week for Angie's birthday meaning this episode had originally been intended to air either October 9th or 16th, when the show was preempted by the World Series. In Episode 7, Vinny's Return, Vinny Vesicchio is back. Who is he? Angie's old flame from long before Brad. But he's returned with the goal of getting Angie back. The three Marys return in this one, and actor Paul Pape plays Vinny. Paul had been Tony Monero's friend Double J in Saturday Night Fever, so this was a reunion of sorts with Donna Pescow, having played Annette in the same film. After Angie, he became a voice actor and has been heard on Cats and Dogs, Osmosis Jones, Frozen, and The Emoji Movie, and he does a lot of ADR work, where a voice is heard when an actor's dialogue is unusable. Viewers of Saturday Night Fever might find Paul's scenes with Donna in this episode uncomfortable, especially when he begins to force himself on her backstage at the Topaz Room, which can't help but make me think of Saturday Night Fever when Double J raped Annette in the back seat of the car. Also, Donna sings with Paul Pape in this episode, and it does appear to be them actually singing. Episode 8 finally gives us the oft-mentioned Uncle Cheech in the form of Danny DeVito as Angie's obnoxious uncle who comes to stay with Teresa and Marie following his divorce and gallbladder surgery. However, the loudmouth, cigar-smoking, practical-joking Cheech overstays his welcome, and he decides to move in with Brad and Angie. Danny DeVito seems like he's doing a variation on his character Louis De Palma from Taxi, which was filming on a nearby soundstage at Paramount Television and in its second season. Donna Pascal recalls working with Danny DeVito on this episode. He played this really hysterical character who was a practical joker and drove the other characters crazy. It was free reign for Danny to go nuts. It was sort of that blue-collar, Italian, annoying uncle. Wonderful. I loved the ethnicity of it all. They played on the wonderful family connection that this big Italian family had. It was just great. It was so up his alley. He was great fun. He was doing both Angie and Taxi at one time, so he was running back and forth. I think he had a great time and had a lot of fun. Obviously, we all had a great time doing it. Young Daryl Cooksey appears as a patient of Brad's. He appeared on a few TV shows and movies, including playing bully Ethan in 1984's The NeverEnding Story, and appearing on the series Emerald Point N.A.S. 
During filming of this episode, Doris Roberts refused to say a line from the original script in which her character threatened to put a hot iron on Uncle Cheech's face. She thought the line was unnecessarily cruel and would instigate imitation. Her objection went all the way to then-head of Paramount Television, Gary Nardino, and the line was rewritten. The following week, Richard Dawson and Gene Wood from Family Feud walk into the coffee shop, and the Falcos get invited onto that game show. Of course, it ends up being the blue-blooded Bensons against the working-class Falcos. Who will win the feud? Richard Dawson was the host of over 2,000 episodes of Family Feud from 1976 to 1985. You might not recognize the name Gene Wood, but you will recognize his voice. On your mark, let's start the Family Feud. Now, Family Feud wasn't produced by Paramount, but it was co-produced and aired on ABC, the same network Angie aired on, and this served as a fun cross-promotion. And as if we had to guess, the episode concluded with this disclaimer. The family feud game within the preceding program has been fully scripted and the outcome prearranged. However, there was a real episode of Family Feud the cast of Angie appeared on, playing against the cast of the Ropers and then the Dukes of Hazard. The Angie cast won $15,404 for the Breast Cancer Research Center in Van Nuys, California. And this episode also produced several one-time appearance relatives, including Falco cousin Petey, played by Carlo Imperato in his first acting appearance. He later was Danny Amatulo on the TV series Fame. In episode 10, Harvey's Mother, while Angie is very busy dealing with a dieting Teresa and her friends, an attractive divorced mother becomes interested in Brad and keeps making unnecessary appointments with him. Harvey's mother was Francine Tacker, who had been a regular on the first season of The Paper Chase, and was one of The Good Time Girls, a Miller Boyette production that would begin airing less than two months later. Eight-year-old Corey Feldman appears as young patient Harvey. At this time, he was already a cast member of The Bad News Bears, which, you guessed it, was also being filmed at Paramount Television. Donna Pascal recalls Corey Feldman's appearance. I remember how adorable he was. The storyline that he was involved with was that his mom made a play for Brad. It was a very funny script. It was one of my favorite scripts. I remember that little face with those little bangs, that little cherubic look. It's so sweet to see the kids at that age and then watch them advance. Corey was very, very young, and he was cute. I remember him as being incredibly cute. It was a funny, funny script. It was one of those I remember. In an effort to expand storyline possibilities for Teresa Falco, this episode introduces Teresa's friends who would be seen in several episodes. Among them, Paramount sitcom regular Ellen Travolta, as well as Florence Halep, who you might remember as Bailiff Florence from Night Court, and Mari Gorman, she had roles throughout the 70s and 80s and probably is best remembered for her role as PTA member Vivian Washburn on Harper Valley PTA. Mary, Mary, Mary's was episode 11, in which Angie's friend Mary Mary gets engaged. 
with Brad and Angie agreeing to hold the wedding at the Benson townhouse. But instead of the groom, a singing telegram arrives with news for Mary Mary, and all her friends have to help her deal with the fallout. Actor G.W. Bailey appears as Mary Grace's husband, Dougie, a zookeeper. Bailey is known for his comedic roles on films like Police Academy, Short Circuit, and Mannequin. And Martin Ferrero was Mary Catherine's brother the father, Father Tortelli. In The Gambler, a trip to Atlantic City with Brad and Angie reveals a gambling addiction for Teresa. Meanwhile, Marie womans the newsstand for the first time. Ellen Travolta, Florence Halep, and Marie Gorman return as friends Loretta, Seal, and Rose. And Meg Wiley showed up at a blackjack table. She has a long character actor history. She was the Talosian keeper on the first pilot of Star Trek, The Cage. The first half of season two closed out with Coffee Wars. A new restaurant opens across the street, taking business away from Angie's coffee shop. In response, she transforms it into a fast food place, which brings back business, but also greatly increases everyone's workload. And Angie has to make a decision on the direction of the business. Actress Kit McDonough makes her second and final appearance as Waitress Bev, she made the rounds on a number of Paramount sitcoms and was a regular on the short-lived Teachers Only in 1982 and Fast Times in 1986. Richard Beauchamp, as Cook Hector, also makes his final appearance as the series would be retooled after the holiday break. However, a scene that shows Brad unpacking in his new office now located next door to the new townhouse reveals that this was filmed earlier in the season intended to air as episode 5 during that three-week break in October, and why they dubbed over that line specifically mentioning his office was now next door, since the scene in this episode that establishes that move had not been aired. In January 1980, Angie returned after the holidays on the 14th on a new night, Mondays, with Angie and Brad's Close Encounter. Brad and Angie meet new neighbors who introduce them to the therapy group MAD, or Marriage Awareness Dynamics, which is designed to improve their marriage. Yes, it's another new night, now on Mondays following Laverne and Shirley, on against the short-lived The Last Resort on CBS and Little House on the Prairie on NBC. Omitting any coffee shop scenes, this took place entirely at Brad and Angie's townhouse and featured several great guest actors. Veteran character actor Earl Bowen was mad teacher Dr. Lerner, recognizable from his nearly 300 roles in everything from Mama's Family, Santa Barbara, and L.A. Law to the Terminator movies. Rhea Perlman also appeared, who would become known for her role as Carla Tortelli on Cheers in 1982. Michael Tucci also showed up, later known for his role on Diagnosis Murder. Michael McManus and Lorna Patterson were the annoying Bud and Sissy Pivo. McManus, known for his comedic appearances on TV commercials, Kentucky Fried Movie, Police Academy 4, and Night Court, and Patterson would be Robert Hayes' co-star as Randy, the singing stewardess, on the Airplane movies. Episode 15 changes the game in Beauty Parlor. 
It opens with Angie having sold the coffee shop and Teresa no longer employed at the newsstand. Having too much free time on their hands, when Teresa's friend Rose sells her beauty shop, Angie jumps at the chance to buy it, employing her mother and sister. While inspecting the premises, Mary Grace begins to give birth right in Gianni's chair. This episode introduces the recurring role of Gianni, the hairstylist, played by special guest star Tim Thomerson. He had played the role of the so-called transmute Gene Jean on Quark the prior year and had been a regular on the Paramount sitcom The Associates. He later took on the role of Jack Death on the Trancers movie series. And Tessa Richard came on board in the recurring role of hairstylist Connie. In Teresa's Gigolo, Gianni has his heart set on a jukebox for the salon, but Angie is having none of it. But when he starts dating Teresa, taking her disco dancing every night, she okays it, along with filling the salon with houseplants, creating friction with Angie that realizes Gianni is taking advantage of Teresa. But she'll find out Teresa is more astute than she realizes. Yes, it was absolutely 1980, and there was plenty of disco dancing by Tim Thomerson, complete with John Travolta Saturday Night Fever white suit. Dennis C. Stewart played a disco dance instructor. He appeared as dancing characters on Pete's Dragon, Grease, Grease 2, and Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. He also appeared on a lot of 80s shows, The Greatest American Hero, Trapper John M.D., Moonlighting, Misfits of Science, The A-Team, and the list goes on. Sadly, he died in 1994 at age 46. Now, this episode features a unique style of closing credits. Instead of the credits played over still images from the show with the closing version of the theme, the concluding scene played out with diegetic music, with the credits playing on top. Quite nice. Then on Angie, there's trouble at home when Marie moves in with her boyfriend and grows up overnight. He was such an animal. Tomorrow. In episode 17, Marie moves out. Marie is tired of dealing with her mother and decides to move out on her own. And she moves in with slick boyfriend Maxie into his disco-balled bachelor pad. But it's quickly clear Maxie and Marie have very different ideas of what it means to live together. Adrian Zamed returned as Maxie, and we see Florence Halep again as Seal. References are made to Marie's Jerry Mahoney doll, which is not seen. Jerry Mahoney was a character created by ventriloquist Paul Winchell in the late 1930s. Paul Winchell was popular as a ventriloquist in the 40s and 50s, and it may seem a dated reference for a 1980s sitcom. But his final appearances, complete with Jerry Mahoney doll, were on the children's series Storybook Squares, a Hollywood Squares for Children, which ran on Saturday mornings in 1969, something an 11-year-old Marie could have watched growing up. Now, in Maxie's apartment, a number of pop culture posters line the walls, including one for Star Trek The Motion Picture, a Paramount film released just two months prior to this episode. A side note, Star Trek The Motion Picture was also filmed right there on the Paramount lot. 
Allison Martino, who runs the Vintage Los Angeles Facebook page, recalls visiting the set of the motion picture and seeing Robert Wise direct William Shatner and Leonard Nimoy in a scene. After visiting the Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and Little House on the Prairie sound stages, all on the same day in 1979. More on the golden heyday of Paramount Television in behind the scenes. After a two-month hiatus, the show returned on April 12th on another new night and time slot with Brad's best buddy. When Gianni considers quitting the salon for more lucrative pastures, Angie suggests that Brad entertain him to keep him around. The plan backfires when Gianni begins spending all his time with Brad and Angie, with Gianni having all too much fun with their push-button cable box, among many other annoyances. Yes, the show now moves to Saturdays as ABC's lead-in show at 8, 7 Central against The Tim Conway Show on CBS and BJ and the Bear on NBC. ABC followed Angie with showrunner Leonora Thuna's other show, Good Time Girls. This is now the fourth time slot the show has been on. Actress Tessa Richard returned as ditzy hairstylist Connie, who would appear on a total of six episodes, she would have bit parts on several 80s TV shows, but this was her only series recurring role. In episode 19, February Fever, Angie has the winter blues, and Brad springs the surprise of a honeymoon trip to the Virgin Islands. But due to a blizzard, there is one obstacle after another to get there. Ronnie Graham appeared as a wisecracking airport ticket agent. He is highly recognizable for his roles on Chico and the Man and as the Bishop on Spaceballs. In The President's Coming, Daddy Benson is back, inviting the President to dinner at Brad and Angie's, making quite the conundrum for the couple when they can't make it to Teresa's dinner or tell her why for security reasons. But when the secret gets out, Everyone from Teresa and Marie to the Three Marys show up for dinner with the president. Following this episode, Angie is officially canceled by ABC, along with The Ropers, Galactica 1980, and Good Time Girls. ABC will burn through three of the remaining four episodes on various Thursday nights later in the summer with the next episode. Episode 21, The Kid Down the Block, which didn't air until July 31st. A nine-year-old boy wanders into the doctor's office alone, complaining about generic symptoms. It turns out the boy doesn't want to perform in a school play, which his guardian, his uncle, is insistent that he does. Brad's concern over the boy, Matthew, gets him personally involved in a confrontation with the boy's uncle. Young Mino Pelusi stars as Matthew, he was currently a regular on Paramount's sitcom, The Bad News Bears, and already had a dozen or so TV guest appearances starting at age seven. The talented Mino later starred in the time-traveling adventure series, Voyagers. Mino's character of Matthew was set up with the likelihood of being a recurring character on the now ill-fated show. Michael Delano was the boy's uncle. The character actor had a lot of appearances, which include recurring roles on Rhoda, Super Train, Flamingo Road, The A-Team, Hill Street Blues, and others. 
Episode 22, Friends in Need, aired the following Thursday night, where Brad and Angie go out of their way to help the three Marys get through their respective problems. The episode establishes nun Mary Catherine opening a daycare center, employing friend Mary Grace. Meanwhile, Mary Mary is struggling to get a promotion at the dime store, and Mary Grace leaves her husband in a spat over her working at the daycare center. This episode was very likely what's called a backdoor pilot for a potential series with the three Marys, setting them up in the new situation, running a daycare center, and showcasing the talents of the three actresses with some pretty good physical comedy by Valerie Bromfield and singing from Nancy Lane. I'll go more into this later. Martin Ferrero returns as Father Ortelli, but G.W. Bailey did not return as Mary Grace's husband Dougie as comedy actor Michael McManus stepped into the role. A month later, ABC airs Angie and Joyce Go to Jail. In a series of flashbacks, the tale of how Angie and Joyce were arrested for shoplifting is told. The story takes place back in the coffee shop days and revolved around Angie and Joyce giving two ladies of the evening an opportunity to work as waitresses. This episode was the last one that aired during the original series run, as the now-canceled series comes full circle, airing back on Thursday night in its original time slot after Mork and Mindy. This one was also directed by Doris Roberts, and this was her only such effort. TV character actresses Jane Daly and Eileen Graff appear as Beth and Debbie, the ladies of the evening. The final episode, number 24 of season 2, Angie and the Doctor, went unaired and was not seen until the series was rerun weekday mornings at 10 a.m. Central on ABC Daytime in the summer of 1985. When Brad injures his back and cannot run his practice, Angie and Brad are surprised when his temporary replacement is a young, attractive female doctor. Initially put off by this, Angie warms to her when she finds out she is also from South Philly. Shelley Smith was the attractive Dr. Walker. She was currently starring in the Paramount sitcom The Associates. She also appeared on episodes of The Phoenix, Heart to Heart, Tales of the Gold Monkey, as well as The Love Boat and Fantasy Island. Patricia Alice Albrecht appeared as hairstylist Connie's daughter, who gets a makeover. She would later provide voices for the new Yogi Bear show, Snorks, the new kids on the block, and was the villain Pizzazz on Jim. Truly outrageous. Young patient Billy was played by Jeremy Schoenberg, later the voice of Linus on the Charlie Brown and Snoopy show in various Charlie Brown specials. And that wrapped up the series of Angie. ABC, again this fall, we're the one. Superstars are in the spotlight. KTL's spectacular new album of original hits, Original Superstars, Alicia Bridges, Andy Gibbs. A Taste of Honey. The Spotlight is on Player, Hall & Oates, Stephen Bishop, Bob Welsh, Crystal Gale, and John Paul Young. 
Davis. Jerry Rafferty. Spotlight, a fantastic new album from KTEL's Showcase Series. LP 599, 8 track or cassette 799. Now available at Woolworth, McCrory, Save-A-Lot, Ames, Eckert Drugs, and at Drug Fair, Two Guys, Montgomery Wards, Sears, and G.C. Murphy. Behind the Scenes. Two weeks prior to its February 8th premiere, a 10-minute sneak preview of Angie was shown to the press to generally positive reviews. Critic Robert Bowden found the low-key situational humor refreshing, following the high-strung Mork and Mindy on Thursdays and commented that it should be around for several seasons. Angie's February 8th debut slotted Thursday night between Mork and Mindy and Barney Miller ranked as the number five show of the week with a 27.9 rating, by my calculation representing some 33.5 million viewers. As reported by the website TV Obscurities, when the February sweeps came to a close, only two of the more than 20 mid-season replacements from all three networks caught the attention of viewers, Angie on ABC and The Dukes of Hazard on CBS. ABC's disco-themed Making It didn't make it far, only nine episodes. Delta House fared better, lasting a full half-season of 13 episodes, leaving Angie the only ABC mid-season sitcom to stay around for the next TV season in the fall of 1979. However, as noted in our episode review, in its second season, the show was moved around an incredible four times, not just to different time slots, but four entirely different nights. Tuesday, Monday, Saturday, and back to Thursday, decisions made by ABC head of primetime programming Tony Thomopoulos, whose moves also damaged ratings for other shows such as Mork and Mindy, Happy Days, and Fantasy Island. The many moves meant viewers had a hard time keeping up with the Bensons and Falcos. This was the era where finding a show that had moved to a new night meant catching a network promo advertising the new night in time, or scouring the TV listings for where your favorite show went. Since there were also changes to the cast and format, with Angie and Brad moving to a new house, then shifting from the coffee shop to a beauty salon, complete with the adding and removing of characters, many viewers felt lost, even if they found the show on another night. This type of show depends on a type of comfort and regularity. Too many changes and viewers find the show no longer familiar. And this is what happened here. The continual time slot and format changes led to the attrition of viewers and some decline in ratings over the course of the second season. But still, the show finished the 1979-80 season with a 19.3 Nielsen rating not placing it in the top 30 shows, but hardly terrible. In fact, tying with Laverne and Shirley, renewed for the 1980 fall season. The cancellation indeed came as a surprise to people like TV columnist Lee Winfrey, who commented on ABC's constantly shifting schedule as the biggest reason the network lost its top slot to CBS after being the network ratings leader for three consecutive years. Angie herself, Donna Pescal, thought the show had at least a 50-50 chance for renewal prior to the announcement. When asked about the cancellation, she commented, 
I don't try to understand it anymore. You have to take it as a big chess game, and the only person who sees the total logic is the person making the moves. Angie's placement in between two established hits meant it was what is called a hammock show. This is a broadcast strategy that depends on the theory that viewers are unlikely to change channels for a single time slot until the next hit show comes on. This is most effective for half-hour time slots, but has been shown to be effective for even one-hour shows, and is a strategy that was successfully used for decades by the TV networks. New or weekly performing shows are thus scheduled inside the hammock time slot. Prominent examples are found in NBC's Thursday night must-see TV lineup in the late 1980s to early 90s, where shows like Family Ties, Night Court, a Different World, Dear John, and Seinfeld were all hammocked between established hit shows to their benefit. If the new show is successful, it can then be moved to another night or time slot to bolster the network schedule. This concept of hammocking was discovered largely by accident in the late 1950s by legendary TV executive Michael Dan when the series December Bride had its ratings fall dramatically when it lost its lead-in show, none other than I Love Lucy. The success of Angie was in no small part to the appeal of the lead actress Donna Pescow. Described by the press as a five-foot-one warm and bouncy brunette from Brooklyn or a spunky little turnip, depending on the article, Donna had acted in both junior and high school, her grandfather, Jack Goldriss, had been a vaudeville stage manager and became a movie theater projectionist in later life. As a girl, Donna would spend Saturdays with him in the projection booth at the RKO Albee Theater, where he taught her old vaudeville routines. She attended the American Academy of Dramatic Arts, where she was forced to unlearn her Brooklyn accent. Following a brief role off-Broadway and an appearance on One Life to Live, her agent, Gloria Dolan, told her about a little part in a little movie that she was encouraged to audition for, which would be her first movie audition. Having to read three times for the role, then again for new director John Batham, Donna began to wonder how small the role really was. Being selected for the role, she underwent training for disco dancing and had to relearn her Brooklyn accent. This small role turned out to be the role of Annette in December 1977's Saturday Night Fever, for which she received seventh billing in its opening credits and sudden national attention. After I did Fever, I got letters from girls who said they had cut their hair like mine and were wearing the same clothes. That scared me. I realized I had a certain responsibility. I'd hate to think that kids were doing certain things because Annette did them. Her grandfather lived long enough to see her movie success. She took him as her date to the movie's premiere, sending him out for popcorn during that controversial scene in the back seat of Bobby C.'s car. Following Saturday Night Fever, Donna was overwhelmed with offers for at least a year. Among the projects pitched to her, producer Gary Marshall pitched the role of Angie. Period interviews with her indicate she was offered the Angie role as early as July of 1978, indicating ABC likely anticipated Mork and Mindy would be a ratings hit 
as indicated by their placing it as the lead-in show for Thursday night on the network. Marshall would tell Donna, Angie was the kind of girl that didn't understand how to live with money. Donna was interested but committed to film projects for producer Ray Stark at the time. In a July 1979 interview, she commented, I spoke to Gary Marshall about the show a year ago, but at the time I was unavailable. Yet I read the script and loved the concept, and eventually everything worked out well. I'm really surprised everything happened so fast. To follow Mork is the best thing that could have happened to us. Fortunately, Donna was able to get out of the projects she was attached to in order to work for Marshall on Angie. Now the lead on a primetime TV series, she found herself on the covers of TV Guide, People Magazine, as well as the covers of numerous local newspaper TV pullouts, and found herself being recognized in public even more than before. When the show first went on the air, people would call out, Angie, and I'd keep on walking. I didn't know it was me they were hailing. Now I stop, and I have the nicest encounters with people. Regarding her appearance on the cover of People magazine at the time, Donna recalls an encounter with then-president of Paramount Television, Gary Nardino. I remember when I was on the cover of People magazine during one of the seasons, Gary Nardino wouldn't let anyone tell me until he came to the soundstage and told me. When the thing came out, he had a copy framed for my mother. It was kind of a homey, sweet, very unusual time. In 1979, Donna was nominated for a Golden Globe for her performance as Angie Falco, and she received a People's Choice nomination for Favorite Actress in a Comedy Series. Robert Hayes grew up a military brat from Bethesda, Maryland, and got used to new locations as his father in the Marine Corps was stationed in one place after another around the world. When his family settled in San Diego, Hayes attended Grossmont College there with interests in karate, track and field, and acting. Transferring to San Diego State, he joined the Actors Guild that performed at the Old Globe Theater, performing there for five years. Working side jobs in photography and janitorial work, he was living in a 1966 VW van he called Buster, a van he incredibly still owns, by the way. When legendary casting executive Eddie Foy III saw him in a performance and cast him in an episode of ABC's Harry O, then filming in San Diego. This led to walk-on roles on The Rockford Files, Marcus Welby, and so on. In March 1976, he appeared on a very early episode of the Gary Marshall series, Laverne and Shirley, called Dating Slump. Although they didn't have any scenes together, a 25-year-old, nearly unrecognizable Mark Harmon also appeared in the episode, which was one of his very first acting roles. Hold on to that thought. Hayes played a bus driver that was Laverne's date, a one-off character on the show, but this, of course, brought him to the attention of producer Gary Marshall. Hayes later appeared as a young Air Force corporal on a 1977 Wonder Woman, appearing alongside a young Deborah Winger as Wonder Woman's sister, Drusilla, in an episode that is a fan favorite. 1978 was busy for Hayes. He was in the ABC TV movies The Initiation of Sarah and Almost Heaven, as well as the extremely short series The Young Pioneers, which he had high hopes for. 
One of the shows I most enjoyed doing, we had hoped would take off as a series, was called The Young Pioneers. In it, I played Dan Green, the unmarried neighbor to The Young Pioneers. It was my kind of show, something people could escape into and enjoy. It gave them hope. Unfortunately, it didn't go as a series. The six-foot-two actor read for the role of Brad Benson for the second pilot of Angie against Mark Harmon, who had appeared on that same Laverne and Shirley episode. Angie director Howard Storm recalls, Mark Harmon did the test against Bob Hayes, and Hayes got the role. I thought Bob Hayes would be a wonderful star. He was a Jimmy Stewart kind of guy. The other actor seriously considered for the role of Brad was A.C. Weary, who went on to appear in the 1980 series The Six O'Clock Follies. And so, Robert played Dr. Brad Benson, pediatrician husband of Angie, the only male regular cast member for the 36-episode run. The role of Brad was written with more physical comedy in the second season, and following the run of Angie, he would explode in popularity, following his appearance in a certain Zucker Abraham's Zucker comedy in the summer of 1980. Yes, during the series' run, Robert auditioned for a movie role that Paramount was casting for, and it was during a filming of Angie that Robert was quietly told backstage by producers Zucker, Abrahams, and Zucker that he was cast in the role of Ted Stryker for the upcoming movie, Airplane. It probably helped that Joel Thurm and Phyllis Glick did casting for both Angie and Airplane. Airplane started filming during Angie's summer hiatus, and principal photography was intended to be wrapped by the time the show went back into production for the fall of 1979. However, when Angie started second season filming, Airplane was behind schedule and ended up overlapping season two of Angie by two weeks. And Hayes found himself going between different stages on the Paramount lot, filming a movie and a sitcom at the same time, an experience he recalls as being unbelievably exhausting. I'd come in, start rehearsing Angie, we'd have the read-through and start blocking it, then we'd break for lunch. And when we broke for lunch, I'd literally just start running for the door. Someone would throw me a little sandwich wrapped in a Ziploc baggie, and then I'd eat that while we're driving across the lot to the other side of Paramount, where we were doing the dance sequence in the bar for Airplane. And we'd be doing that till the Angie set called to say, okay, we're back, so we need him back. And they'd say, yeah, okay, and we'd keep filming. And they'd call again and say, okay, we're back, we need him. Okay. <laughs> and then we'd keep filming. And pretty soon they'd call and say, we need him back here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And then finally I'd go back and they're all grumbling. So we keep rehearsing. And then I'd go back over and we'd keep filming on airplane. And then I'd finally get home late, get up the next morning, go in and start doing Angie. And then during the lunch break, I'd make a mad dash for the door again. The on-screen chemistry between Robert and Donna seems to at least briefly have extended to off-screen as well, as the pair were reported to have dated in early 1979. The two are still friends today. Sharon Spellman, who played Brad's pompous sister Joyce, came to the series with a theatrical background. Prior to her Angie role, the Sioux City native majored in theater arts at University of Iowa had hosted the local affiliate CBS morning show in Chattanooga, Tennessee, 
and appeared on stage with repertory companies in half a dozen cities, including New York and L.A. She had recurring roles on Search for Tomorrow and Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Her husband, Stephen Johnson, was a regular on the Dracula segment of Cliffhangers, and they are still married. Deborah Lee Scott had appeared as Bob Falfa's girlfriend in American Graffiti in 1973. She also had a role in the movie Earthquake the following year, and although her scenes were cut from the theatrical version, they were re-added for the extended NBC TV broadcast. Her scenes can be seen on the 2019 Blu-ray release of that film. Deborah Lee also had received good reviews for her role of Kathy Shumway on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. And you might recall her as Hotsy Totsy on Welcome Back, Cotter before getting the role of Marie on Angie. Donna Pescal has fond memories of working with Deborah Lee. She was just a pistol. She was just this perpetual motion of a person. She was very young as well and had done so much more. She had started so much younger. She was kind of the voice of showbiz. I remember her saying, you have to go out to parties. You must. I'd say, why? She'd say, you have to go. I would say, don't you go home after school. Doris Roberts had been around truly since the dawn of television, playing on Starlight Theater and Studio One at the very beginning of the 1950s. Her 1960s appearances were on Ben Casey, Naked City, and The Defenders. She was on film in The Taking of Pelham 123, Bell Book and Candle, and Rabbit Test. In the 70s, she had recurring roles on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, Soap, and Barney Miller prior to being cast on Angie. Donna Pescal got along well with her on-screen mother. Doris will always be the pro that you look forward to take as your lead. She's just so incredibly smart and inventive and talented. She loves what she does so much that it's contagious. For me, Doris was a friend who understood. I would occasionally need a little advice on the industry because I just didn't know the world that well. She was really wonderful about advising and also keeping things running on a normal level, even when Angie got incredibly successful. And I would get kind of nervous about that. I learned a huge amount from her just by watching her work. I loved when she had scenes and we could play off each other because those were just gold. Ten-year-old Tammy Lauren was pretty new to the acting scene. She had appeared on an episode of Fantasy Island prior to being cast as Brad Benson's niece and Joyce's daughter, Hillary. But not even Sharon Spellman, her on-screen TV mother, could answer how the youngster got third billing on the show in the first season. However, Spellman did have fond memories of working with Tammy, as she told Forgotten TV. Ah, Tammy Lauren. Tammy was wonderful to work with, even as a little girl. She and I had a sweet reunion in 1987, when we were both in The Stepford Children. But what was the producers thinking when they gave her third billing? That always puzzled the rest of us. I don't remember why she didn't appear in the second season. Yes, inexplicably, the character of Hillary was dropped in Season 2 as the series was helmed by new producers and went in new story directions. John Randolph had been a stage actor that made his film debut in a small role on 1948's The Naked City. 
However, his social activism in the 1940s and 50s caused him and his wife to be called to testify before the House Un-American Activities Committee in 1955, and he ended up being blacklisted from Hollywood films during the McCarthy era. In 1966, John Frankenheimer broke the blacklisting when he cast Randolph in the Rock Hudson film Seconds. He quickly became a familiar face on TV on The Defenders, The Bold Ones, Night Gallery, Bonanza, and Mannix. Forgotten TV listeners will recognize him as the friendly Dr. Hoagland from the series Lucan. The introduction of the Three Marys in Season 2 provided additional comedic support for the show. The supporting character trio of three friends all named Mary, played by Valerie Bromfield, Susan Duvall, and Nancy Lane, proved to be popular with the live audience, and newspaper articles claimed ABC quickly produced a pilot with the Three Marys for a potential spin-off series. Finding no information on this unsold TV pilot on IMDb or in Lee Goldberg's reference guide, Lee suggested they were referring to an existing Angie episode used as a backdoor pilot. This may indeed have been what happened. A backdoor pilot is when an episode of an existing series heavily focuses on adjacent characters with an eye to spin off a new series with those characters. This way, it airs as an episode of and is worked into the budget of the existing series, whether or not the proposed series is ever launched. For example, the Assignment Earth episode of Star Trek featured new character Gary Seven in then-present-day 1968 Earth. The Brady Bunch did the same thing with the fifth season episode, Kelly's Kids, featuring new characters Ken and Kathy Kelly and their racially blended family. You might think of other examples. The other possibility is that this pilot was commissioned as a script, but never actually shot. Either way, while the Three Marys show was never produced, they showed up in eight second season episodes and were heavily featured in both Mary, Mary, Mary's and Friends in Need. Nancy Lane, who played Peppery Nunn's sister Mary Catherine, had toured in the national company of a chorus line, where the audience was more focused on the women's legs than their faces, and she originally worried about the appearance of her nose, which perhaps didn't meet traditional standards of beauty for television. She actually thought of getting a nose job during her days on Rhoda, but star Valerie Harper would have none of it telling her, Nancy, don't you dare. Nancy Lane later mused, All you see is my nose. I don't see any woman with a long nose on television. I might as well be the first. Following Angie, Lane wrote episodes of Taxi and The Love Boat and was a regular on the short-lived series The Duck Factory. Following her showbiz career, she married and had three kids. I am very mommy-oriented said Lane in a 1995 interview. I'm the star in my family, and that's pretty important to me. You can see Nancy Lane in a July 2020 episode of the web series Stars in the House, celebrating a chorus line reunion. Canadian actress Valerie Bromfield was Mary Mary. She was no newcomer to comedy. She started her career teaming with Dan Aykroyd, and together they joined the first Toronto company of the Second City, as original players. She also appeared on the very first episode of Saturday Night Live, before being cast as semi-regular on Angie. 
She next was seen in the Western comedy Best of the West with Joel Higgins and Voyagers with Mino Paluzzi. She was famously hit in the face with a meat cleaver in 1993's Needful Things and had a recurring role on Grace Under Fire. Bromfield also served as a story editor on Angie's second season and as a writer on The Rosie O'Donnell Show. Susan Duvall was the pregnant Mary Grace, well, until she had her baby at the beauty salon. Also credited as Tootsie Duvall, she later played a character named Angie on The Greatest American Hero. She's appeared in local television productions in the Baltimore market and has been seen in the John Waters films Serial Mom, Pecker, and A Dirty Shame. And she was seen in episodes of HBO's The Wire. She later taught acting at Towson State University in Maryland. Kit McDonough played coffee shop waitress Bev in two episodes filmed early in season two prior to the series Beauty Shop Direction Change. She had been a semi-regular extra on Happy Days as well as several Paramount sitcoms. She was likely intended to have more appearances as a recurring character, but life had other plans. Ms. McDonough shared her memories revolving around her brief Angie role with Forgotten TV. Sadly, when I was hired, my father had just suffered a heart attack and was hospitalized. That first week, I was driving from the studio to the hospital near our home in Laguna Beach. I must have made several trips home that first week, always returning on time to the studio the next day. But I kept things quiet and to myself. Something striking about that time for me is that as I would take my old red VW Bug into a gas station to fill her up for the two-hour drive south, it was the era of gas rationing. In order to get gas, it would depend if you had an odd or even license plate number. Not paying attention and waiting in long lines, nervously anxious to get my turn at the pump, I was turned away by an employee because my license plate wasn't the right odd or even number and I was on the wrong day. The owner made me drive away. I remember crying and trying to tell him I needed to get to my father, but he said, leave. In a long-about way, I walked to the Bank of America, leaving my car in a different gas station, told by the owners if I had cash, I could get gas. I walked back down Santa Monica Boulevard and gave the cash to these nefarious-looking men and filled up. I believe it was my second episode on Angie when my mother found me on the set and said my father had died. From the beginning, what should have been such a celebration for me to be cast in an ongoing TV show with wonderful people became the saddest, confusing, heartbreaking time for me. My heart had not been in my work, and I think the producers could tell I was distracted. And I even think the director told me something like, you're not funny. You used to be funny. I told the producers that my father had just died, and not a kinder, more gracious set of bosses ever existed. They offered me a car to get to Laguna. I said, no, that's okay. They let me walk away, midweek, midday, and they were genuinely concerned. I don't remember anybody's name, but I left the show and buried my father on my 30th birthday. Kit McDonough was later on the cast of Teachers Only and Fast Times, both high school-centric sitcoms, and she made about 30 more appearances on TV and film, 
including 1993's Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey, also featuring Angie's Robert Hayes. Following the 90s, she seemed to have largely left acting, making only occasional minor appearances since, and now appears to be a high school guidance counselor in the L.A. area. I'd like to thank her for her very personal experience she has shared with us. As mentioned earlier, Angie had two pilot episodes, which isn't nearly as rare or unprecedented as is put forth in the mythology of the original Star Trek. I've now come across several TV series that had more than one pilot. The first pilot featured actor John Corcus in the role of Brad Benson. Corcus appeared in about 20 films and TV episodes throughout the 1970s, such as Catch-22, The Day of the Dolphin, All in the Family, Maud, Starsky and Hutch, and Enos. Corcus just wasn't right for the role according to writers Alan Eisenstock and Larry Mintz, and had simply been miscast, leaving producers to look for a different actor to play the part of Brad Benson. The first pilot had a fully produced theme song that was done by Dan Foliart and Howard Pearl, who later composed the familiar harmonica and saxophone theme for Roseanne. The pair are also credited for series music for Angie, scoring the background music heard during episodes as well as the closing credits incorporating elements of the Charles Fox, Norman Gimbel theme we'll discuss in a bit. Foley Art and Pearl also did music for Bosom Buddies, Madam's Place, Joni Loves Chachi, O Madeline, and the short-lived Mary Tyler Moore vehicle, Mary, in 1985. After viewing the first pilot, which was never aired and remains unseen by the public, all the actors were let go and replaced, with the exception of Donna Pescal and Sharon Spellman, and a second pilot was authorized by ABC. Other actresses even read for the role of Angie, but none were seriously considered to replace Pescal in the lead role. Spellman's character of Brad's sister Joyce was softened, and with more emphasis to be placed on the Falco family, the character of Teresa Falco was added in the form of actress Doris Roberts. Robert Hayes and the remaining actors were cast, as we've already covered. IMDb Trivia claims one of the pilots, although it doesn't say which one, was shot in 1974, but this cannot be the case, as the show was specifically created to complement new hit Mork and Mindy on Thursday nights, which didn't air until the fall of 1978. As mentioned, Donna Pescal was chosen for the role after seeing her in 1977's Saturday Night Fever, and she was offered the Angie role in the summer of 1978. I mentioned that the first pilot of Angie loosely had its origins in a script that originally had been intended for a Laverne and Shirley spinoff. None other than Jerry Belson, Gary Marshall's old writing partner from the Lucy and Dick Van Dyke show days, had written this pilot script prior to the production of Angie. The origins of this unproduced pilot script had its roots in season one of Laverne and Shirley. Recall the dating slump episode. Mark Harmon and Robert Hayes appeared in. In that episode, Shirley becomes reclusive and refuses to date after learning that Carmine has a new girlfriend. Eager to help out her friend, Laverne plans an evening out at a pool hall, only to have the two girls and their dates wind up in a barroom scuffle with a couple of tough guys and their girls, one of which threatens Laverne. 
You take this corny little shrimp. Ah, I've had a vitamin deficiency recently. <laughs> I'm gonna take the other one. I'm gonna rip that L right off of her chest. <laughs> Touch my L, sweetie, and your teeth go to Peoria. This was actress Carol Eda White's debut on the series. Her unnamed character in this episode evolved into a recurring one that was revealed to be the high school nemesis of Penny Marshall's character, Laverne, named Big Rosie Greenbaum, a character that would start appearing at the beginning of season two well-known for calling Laverne a bimbo. The Big Rosie character would make almost a dozen appearances throughout the remainder of the series and is something of a fan favorite. The character of Rosie had married up to a never-seen husband and with her fur coat and new Cadillac was now more well-off financially than Laverne and Shirley, which was an added point of contention between Rosie and Laverne. Carol Ida White had grown up your typical 60s kid in Southern California. A girl who dreamed of being an actor, obsessed with Ed Kooky Burns at age nine, and the Beatles as a teenager. Except she sort of wasn't your typical 60s kid. Her dad knew Ed Kooky Burns, and her dad's friend Carl, Carl Reiner that is, arranged for her to meet the Beatles on her 16th birthday. Yes, she grew up in the business. Her father had first come to Hollywood in 1936 to pursue a career in show business, and his first job was working for Mae West at her Hollywood theater. When the movie business initially didn't pan out, he ended up in New York with a role on the Broadway play Harvey, eventually being cast in the movie version with Jimmy Stewart, which led to a string of supporting roles on movies, as well as television throughout the 50s and 60s around 200 appearances, not the least of which were the Twilight Zone episodes Once Upon a Time and Cavender is Coming. If you're around my age, you will almost certainly recognize him as the face of the Maytag repairman for over 20 years, actor Jesse White. So even though Carol was brought up around show business, her father taught her to act as a professional around celebrity. At nine, when she busted out, Kooky, lend me your comb, when she was introduced to Ed Burns, her father was mortified and corrected her. She quickly learned not to be in awe of celebrity when attending parties with Marlon Brando, Tony Curtis, or Paul Newman, or at least to keep it to herself. When she met the Beatles at age 16, she didn't even ask for autographs, but secretly collected their cigarette butts and drinking cups for her collection. When she was 20, Carol moved to New York and started working improv groups in the village. A few years later, she came back to L.A. and joined the original Comedy Store Players on Sunset Boulevard when that venue first opened. It was there that Gary Marshall noticed her and gave her a spot on the TV movie Evil Roy Slade he was doing with Jerry Belson thereby getting her equity, SAG, and AFTRA affiliations and making her official. This led to appearances on Love American Style, The Odd Couple, and Laverne and Shirley, which brings us back to our story on the origins of Angie. I reached out to Carolita White, and in a Forgotten TV exclusive, she told me the story of a big rosy spinoff that never was. 
According to Carol White, upon her first appearance as Big Rosie in 1976, Fred Silverman, ABC executive at the time, told Gary Marshall to start developing a Big Rosie Laverne and Shirley spinoff. Marshall withheld this information from her for a couple of months and dragged his feet getting a pilot written. White was later told by actor Phil Foster that Gary didn't want another Fonzie situation evolving on Laverne and Shirley, where a supporting character rivals the main characters, especially his sister, in popularity, creating the issues that come along with that. Indeed, there was already no shortage of behind-the-scenes drama to manage on the set of Laverne and Shirley. Cindy Williams famously walked off the set less than two months into the production of season one. At one Christmas, the writers handed out dartboards to the crew with Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams' pictures on them, and arguments between cast and crew members could often be heard on the next soundstage. Carol says the lead actresses were passive-aggressive at table reads on episodes that she appeared in, suggesting the script could be rewritten to give her fewer lines. Does Rosie really need to deliver those lines? Shirley could deliver those lines. As she recalls, instead of a Big Rosie spinoff being further developed, Gary and sister Penny Marshall decided to drop the Big Rosie character at the end of the second season, after eight appearances by my count. But when the third season started up, offered her the chance to come back for less money and fewer appearances, which Carol declined. Penny Marshall then called Carol at home and personally asked her to come back at her regular salary. So Rosie made a single appearance early in season three and no more until over four years later when they brought her back one last time for a class reunion episode in season seven a final appearance of the character. So even though a Big Rosie pilot script had been written by Jerry Belson, it was never filmed or even shown to Carol for her to read. Carol also accounts that any fan mail that came for her was withheld, again, which she interprets as Gary and Penny Marshall keeping her in line as only a supporting character. This is where it gets a little murky. Jerry Belson's Big Rosie pilot script sat around undeveloped and unfilmed. At some point, Gary Marshall was asked to create a companion series to the upcoming Mork and Mindy, and we know he was pitching Donna Pescal a contemporary Cinderella story series concept during the summer of 1978, well ahead of the start of the fall TV season. Later that year, when writers Alan Eisenstock and Larry Mintz were working on What's Happening?, Producer Lloyd Schwartz, who was head of comedy development at ABC, asked them if they wanted to write a new pilot for a series with the concept of Cinderella After the Ball, Rittenhouse Square Philadelphia Doctor Falls in Love with a Coffee Shop Waitress. Eisenstock and Mintz, who had never been shown or even knew about any prior Big Rosie script, agreed and began work on an Angie pilot based only on that verbal one-line concept and developing Angie from this concept into a series. The only story element that Angie seemed to share with the unproduced Big Rosie script was that the main character was a working-class woman that married a wealthy doctor. Although, as revealed in the Laverne and Shirley episode, The Bridal Shower, Rosie had married Ogden, a proctologist, and not Brad, a pediatrician. You think you got problems? 
You ought to try living with a proctologist. It ain't easy. My Ogden. He couldn't just be a dermatologist. No, he had to follow a dream. Jerry Belson, however, thought the Angie pilot similar enough to his big rosy pilot script that he filed a dispute with the Writers Guild over it. After the arbitration committee reviewed the scripts, they decided in favor of Eisenstock and Mintz, who had written the Angie pilots from scratch, not based on any prior material. Jerry Belson moved on and worked for other projects, creating the critically acclaimed Tracy Ullman Show for Fox in 1987, writing the screenplays to films Smokey and the Bandit 2 in 1980 and Always in 1989, as well as producing The Drew Carey Show. Interesting, entertaining, conversation, stimulating, never less fascinating. People! In this week's People... Stocker Channing's had her dog days, but since Greece, she's found her feet in TV's Just Friends. Soul searching people. Housewife Dorothy Allison is a psychic who solves crime mysteries, or so the cops say. Life loving people. John Walmsley, alias Jason Walton, got hitched, and all the Waltons came. Sounds just like the Waltons. Interesting, entertaining, conversation, stimulating, never less fascinating. People. Fascinating people. Pick it up, pick it up. ABC. Alan Eisenstock and Larry Mintz initially had the hands-on task of producing and writing several of the early episodes, including the pilot, thus being largely responsible for establishing the characters and story concepts and earning their developed-by credit. They were invited to stay on for Season 2, but the relentless production schedule of producing three consecutive TV seasons, working on Sanford and Son, and What's Happening, followed immediately by Angie, took its toll, and the pair decided to take a lesser role as contributing writers for Mork and Mindy. Their story is more fully explored in the interview segment. In the second season, Leonora Thuna came aboard to run the show as executive producer. A writer of stage, TV, and film, she had written episodes of Family, Lou Grant, and the TV movie, I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings. She also created Good Time Girls for Paramount Television and ABC, featuring Annie Potts, Georgia Engel, and Peter Scolari. Thuna later collaborated with performer Shelley Berman and composer Charles Fox and lyricist Norman Gimbel, Yes, the creative team behind Angie's hit theme song, writing the off-Broadway musical comedy The Eleventh in the late 90s. Leonora Thuna died in 2011 at age 81. Other producers that came on at various times were Bob Ellison from The Mary Tyler Moore Show and Rhoda, Bruce Johnson from Gomer Pyle and Alice, Gloria Banta, who worked on Rhoda and It's a Living, and Harry Cawley, writer on Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Writers that worked on Angie included, of course, Eisenstock and Mintz. Emily Marshall is credited with writing six second-season episodes, as well as serving as executive script consultant. She had been a producer 
On the Popcorn Kid, the first show considered on Forgotten TV. She was also a story editor on Rhoda and WKRP in Cincinnati, and later was executive story consultant on New Heart. Emily Marshall had worked on the staff of The Tonight Show as a secretary where she met musician Doc Severinsen in 1972. They married in 1980. Sheldon Bull, who would write on Good Time Girls and It's a Living, contributed four episodes and also served as executive story editor on season two. Emily Levine wrote three episodes. She wrote for Laugh-In and later Designing Women. The bulk of the remaining episodes of Angie were assigned to various writers on a one-off basis. The other set of names prominently featured in front of episodes were that of executive producers Robert L. Boyette and Thomas L. Miller, whose names would grace sitcoms from the 70s through the 90s. Miller Milkus Productions was a production company Thomas Miller had formed with former film editor Edward K. Milkus in 1969. Milkus had gotten his start as a production assistant on Star Trek and went on to work on The Immortal and sitcoms The Odd Couple and The Brady Bunch. Miller Milkus produced not only Angie, but Blansky's Beauties, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, making it with David Naughton and Mork and Mindy. When Boyette joined the team, it was named Miller Milkus Boyette Productions for a time. When Milkus resigned from the company, it was renamed Miller Boyette Production until it shut down in 1999. A list of their work takes us down memory lane with titles like Bosom Buddies, Valerie, Perfect Strangers, Full House, Step by Step, and Family Matters as Miller Boyette Productions developed a long-standing relationship with ABC, and their shows graced its Friday night TGIF lineup for over a decade. Miller and Boyette again teamed up in 2016 to produce the Full House revival, Fuller House. Ed Milkus died in 1996 at age 65. Thomas Miller died in 2020 at age 79. Robert Boyette is currently 79 and lives in Connecticut. Donna Pescal related the beneficent hand with which the production team ran the series. The shows were managed so beautifully. The care was really above and beyond. They really, really, really hired the best people. The tone of a show is always set by those who run it. They had great love and respect for all their projects. They really cared and made us feel that way. We always felt appreciated. Jeff Chambers and Howard Storm directed all Season 1 episodes. Howard Storm started his directing career with MTM Productions on the set of Rhoda, before working for Paramount Television on Laverne and Shirley, Mork and Mindy, and Angie. Chambers also worked on Mork and Mindy, Valerie, and the pilot for the obscure TV adaptation of Gung Ho in 1986. Donna Pescal had high praise for Howard Storm. He was fabulous. Even now, I love working with him when I can. He's so funny and inventive, and he knows this business like the back of his hand. He's also one of those directors who lets you find your way and who keeps you on course without telling you how he wants it done. He's very much into a group effort to find it, which is great 
He's confident enough in his work not to strong-arm any of the direction. He's great for actors because he comes up with great ideas, and you know that you can trust him. If you need help, he's there. John Tracy and Lowell Gantz directed the bulk of Season 2. Tracy cut his teeth directing 130 episodes of The Electric Company on PBS. He later worked on Newhart, Boy Meets World, and several Miller Boyette productions just named. Gantz was much more of a writer than a director, having written for The Odd Couple, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and other shows, often with writing partners Mark Rothman and or Babalu Mandel. Outside of television, Gantz was a frequent writer of some of the most well-remembered comedy films throughout the 80s and 90s, again often with Mandel. And you may have seen the names of these award-winning writers in front of some of your favorite films from this era. Splash, Spies Like Us, Gung Ho, Vibes, Parenthood, City Slickers, A League of Their Own, Multiplicity, Father's Day, and Ed TV, among others. Angie was produced in partnership with Paramount Television. Some credit sequences and establishing shots were indeed shot on location in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. City Hall and the William Penn statue, as well as the Liberty Bell, are prominently shown in the opening credits. Some shots edited into Season 2's opening scenes look to have been filmed at Independence Park downtown, but according to Sharon Spellman, the shots featuring the actors was actually filmed a little closer to home. The second season opening was filmed in a park in L.A., I thought it went fine, until Deborah Lee, who became a close friend, pointed out to me that, for whatever reason, they'd forgotten to film my close-up for the credits. So if you look at that opening, you'll see every cast member except me in close-up. I was a little disappointed, but it really was okay. Season 2's opening ends with Brad and Angie, or is it their stand-ins? atop City Hall's tower on the observation deck before it was fully enclosed by glass and wire. Philadelphia City Hall took 30 years to construct and was completed in 1901. The observation deck is 499 feet above street level. In the first season, Angie and Brad lived in a three-story brownstone at 76 Clinton Street in Philadelphia. Although the house number is fictional, Clinton Street is real, a two-block, tree-lined street located in Philly's historic Washington Square West. It is now considered a hip, trendy, very gay-friendly neighborhood. In fact, the downtown area known as the Gayborhood overlaps Center City and the northwest side of Washington Square West. Washington Square is one of five original public squares in the city. It's a major tourist attraction, as it contains a memorial of George Washington and the unknown soldiers of the American Revolution. Washington Square West is adored by many because of its safe and secure streets, as well as friendly atmosphere. Clinton Street is lined with historic brownstones from the mid-19th century that look just like the one used in the establishing shots for Brad and Angie's mansion. Looking at the house depicted, you could estimate it to have anywhere between four to eight bedrooms and be anywhere from three to 5,000 square feet, at least. The address of the townhouse they moved into in the second season was never given. An additional note on Season two's townhouse, 
Although dialogue establishes Brad's doctor's office is now downstairs through the door under the staircase, the exterior of the townhouse shown in the establishing shots depict more of a duplex with separate entrance located just a couple of feet to the right of the main door we always see used. This would suggest his office is on the ground floor beneath the bedrooms of the townhouse. Of course, TV houses rarely match up to the exteriors. Houses shown on the Waltons, the Brady Bunch, and other shows famously do not match the interior sets at all. Angie was a multi-camera live audience show filmed on sound stages at Paramount Studios. In the heyday of Paramount TV sitcoms, audience members would line up for hours to see a live show filming. Quite a number of shows were in production at 5555 Melrose. If you lined up the sound stages, you would have Mark and Mindy, Angie, Taxi, Laverne and Shirley, and Happy Days, all next to each other in that order on the Paramount lot. Not to mention other shows like The Associates, Making It, Here's Boomer, Good Time Girls, and even NBC's Little House in the Prairie's interior scenes were all shot on sound stages on the Paramount lot at the time although obviously not all of these were open to audiences. Actors from the various shows would see each other outside the sets over lunch at the commissary. Donna Pescal recalls this special time in classic TV history. It was a really extraordinary time. I look at it now and realize how unusual it was because I had nothing to base it on then. But I thought at the time, wow, this is really amazing. This must be what it's like at every studio. But I don't think it was. I think it was really unique to Paramount at the time. It was sitcom college. We'd all meet in the commissary, and it'd be an animal house kind of thing, but without the food fights. It was kind of a wonderful feeling of community in a sense. Even though they were the top ten shows, it felt that way because we were all working together in the same space, on the same lot. It felt like a community, even though it was much bigger than that. I used to watch Tony Danza playing catch with his son. Danny DeVito played Angie's uncle Cheech. Everyone knew each other. We were all there and all so young. Playing basketball or being outside the soundstage, even to talk on breaks, was common. Robin Williams used to come running on the set and kill us all with his unbelievable comedy and humor. In the middle of a show, he'd just come running in and do a bit and run out. Cindy Williams and I would try to work it out so we would have lunch on the same schedule. It just seemed natural. It sounds so naive now, but we all had a good time. Everyone was so happy to be there. Reaching out to supporting cast member Diane Robin, she recounted similar sentiments regarding Paramount, telling Forgotten TV, It was a magical time at Paramount. Mark and Mindy, Angie, Laverne and Shirley, Happy Days were all shooting on the lot. One day, Robin Williams did an imitation of me as Dee Dee. It was hysterical. Production on weekly shows like this was done on an unrelenting schedule. Workdays were typically 12-hour days, five days a week, 22 weeks a year. For Angie, table reads were held on Wednesday morning when the actors were introduced to and read through a new script. 
Blocking, staging, rehearsals, and the inevitable rewrites would take place over the next several days. And on Tuesday night of the following week, the show was performed live in front of an audience, typically twice. And after the audience left, pickups had to be filmed, where parts of scenes had to be reshot for various technical reasons, which could go late into the night. Then the actors and key members of the crew had to be back the next morning to start the process all over again for the next episode. The show was filmed in 35mm instead of shot on video, and this is evident on the DVD where occasionally you can detect film damage, hair, and other artifacts visible in frame. Although Desi Arnaz would later downplay its significance, I Love Lucy actually pioneered the technique of multi-camera filming, shooting their show like a movie in front of a live audience instead of kinescoping its image on a video screen, which was typical of the time. Even though the resulting image was of higher quality, this was a much, much more expensive process. And with CBS refusing to foot the bill for the production, Desilu Productions was formed to produce the show. Before the conclusion of its initial run, Desilu sold the rerun broadcast rights to CBS for $5 million in 1956. Of course, on a TV show, there are other creative forces at work. For a TV sitcom where we have no special effects or high-concept plot, the appeal of the show generally hinges on the personality and likability of the main actors. How the actors are presented on camera is a result of a lot of behind-the-scenes effort of hairstylists, makeup professionals, and costumers. The hairstylists on Angie were Shelley Kirby, Dale Miller, Elizabeth Rabe, and Hollis Hoffman. Working at Paramount Television, Shirley was a hairstylist on Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, The Brady Brides, and Webster. The outrageous and outspoken Dale Miller later worked for over a dozen years on both the Academy and Emmy Award shows, and for many years was the personal hairstylist for Ann Gillian, including working with her on both Jennifer Slept Here and It's a Living. Elizabeth Rabe worked on a number of 80s shows such as Family Ties, Knight Rider, The Love Boat, and so on. She also worked on the Back to the Future movies and the Star Trek series and Star Trek Nemesis film. Hollis Hoffman also did hairstyling on Solid Gold. Conrad Fia and Sharon Litton were the men's and women's costumers on the series, respectively. Conrad Fia had been the costumer on Rhoda, Shannon Litton also worked on Rhoda, Cagney and Lacey, and Murder, She Wrote. One name that contributed to costuming, but that you won't find in the credits, was that of Jean-Pierre Dorliac. In his book, The Naked Truth, he shares a humorous behind-the-scenes Angie story that took place while he was working on the TV movie The Rebels. As if I weren't busy enough, Paramount Studios called on January 15th asking me to design for the delightfully adorable Donna Pascal in her new series, Angie, which would start shooting in a couple of weeks. Donna was a joy to work with, and the assignment turned out to be wonderful in spite of a ridiculous situation created by someone with next-to-zero background in the actual development of entertainment. After viewing run-throughs of the first taped rehearsal, a junior network executive aiming to claim a piece of the action, decided that Angie looked too pudgy. 
So he determined that she would wear something under all her clothes to make her look more svelte. And why did he decide such a thing now, had he not seen her brilliant performance in Saturday Night Fever? You have to wonder about a person who does something so dumb when he knew what she looked like before she'd been hired. If the network had wanted someone with a model figure, why would they have given Donna the role? Besides, she was in good shape, even thinner than she was in the film. But she just wasn't tall and willowy. But no, this delusional man wanted a sleeveless underbody suit for her that would pull her in everywhere, making her appear thinner to his eye. I told the producer and an executive that such a foundation would have to be custom-made. One couldn't buy an industrial under-foundation like that anywhere in retail stores then. A long-line bra with a separate girdle was the only option. Having made all the spandex uniforms for Good Guys Wear Black, in addition to the ones used on Buck Rogers, I found some similar, stronger cotton yardage that was woven with lycra for flexibility and had the women's workroom at Paramount's costume department construct an extremely firm bodysuit with thin shoulder straps for support. It was finished within a day, after which all her costumes were refitted over it as costs went sky high. Poor Donna shot the second episode with her new shape, while the junior executive sat grinning like an idiot because of his ingenious idea, but neither she nor I thought that she looked all that much more flattering. However, it only lasted through two segments, because it was too uncomfortable and almost impossible for Donna to move in naturally. Finally, the producers, the director, Donna, and the head of the network agreed that she looked too restricted, so $5,000 went out the window. Due to the overtime involved in having it done overnight, taking in all her outfits, and then letting them out again, the production manager screamed at me, then threatened my life. I knew he was only acting. It had nothing to do with my work, but he had to take it out on someone, since the network executives and producers never want to be bothered with trivial cost overruns or admit they had been wrong. Whenever Donna and I would get together thereafter, we always referred to it as her Jacques Cousteau suit, because the concept had really tanked. The theme song for Angie was called Different Worlds, and was performed by Maureen McGovern. This is arguably the most remembered feature of this short-lived sitcom, because it gained a life above and beyond the theme song to a TV show, and became a hit in its own right. And it's no surprise, as the upbeat theme served to introduce the narrative of the show even to new viewers and was an earworm, one of those songs that easily gets stuck on your brain on repeat. Different Worlds was written by the team of composer Charles Fox and lyricist Norman Gimbel, who we've run into before, as they were songwriting partners for an incredible 50 years, together writing nearly 200 songs for TV, film, theater, and records, including the themes for Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, Sid and Marty Croft's Puffin' Stuff, and the familiar theme to Wonder Woman, as well as hit songs Killing Me Softly with His Song, which became a hit for Roberta Flack, and Ready to Take a Chance Again for Barry Manilow. Different Worlds was McGovern's final Top 40 hit, charting number 18 and spending 16 weeks on Billboard's Top 100. She had a number one in 1973 with 
The Morning After, used in the movie The Poseidon Adventure. In 1974, the British disaster film Gold used her song Wherever Love Takes Me. When in 1975, her song We May Never Love Like This Again appeared in the film The Towering Inferno, a third disaster film in as many years, this led the media to call McGovern the disaster theme queen. In 1979, her vocalization of Lois Lane's soliloquy, Can You Read My Mind?, from Superman the Movie was also released. McGovern had also occasionally appeared on film, having cameos as Sister Angelina, the singing nun on both Airplane and Airplane 2, also starring Robert Hayes. I reached out to Ms. McGovern, who provided Forgotten TV with her thoughts and recollections revolving around her hit song. I recorded songs by the wonderful songwriters Charlie Fox and Norman Gimbel in the late 70s and early 80s. Two of my very favorites are We Could Have It All from the film The Last Married Couple in America and Different Worlds from the TV series Angie, the latter being a top 40 hit for me. Ironically, to some extent, I owe my Broadway debut in The Pirates of Penzance to Different Worlds. Producer Joseph Papp from the Shakespeare Festival, director Wilford Leach, and musical director Bill Elliott were looking for a coloratura to replace Linda Ronstadt in the role of Mabel. One of their staff mentioned my high notes on the recording of Different Worlds. I was asked to audition and got the part. I then went to Pittsburgh to play one week of summer stock as Maria in The Sound of Music, my very first musical and three weeks later made my Broadway debut as Mabel in Pirates of Penzance, and loved every single minute for the next 14 months. A valentine of a show. So thanks again to Charlie Fox and the late Norman Gimbel for including me in your wonderful songbook. Let the time flow, let the love grow, let the rain shower, let the rose flower. Love it seeks and love it finds. Love it conquers, love it binds. One recurring background story element in the first season of Angie that was played as a joke was that the unseen Falco patriarch had gone out for cigarettes and never came back, thus abandoning his family. The punchline of the joke, as told on the first episode of Angie, was that he didn't even smoke. The theme of parental abandonment has been used as a background theme in storytelling for thousands of years. But the modern recurring theme of a parent specifically leaving to run an errand, usually said to be cigarettes and never coming back, seems to be referenced quite a bit in pop culture. Researching this, I find that this sadly has happened in real life as I found several first-hand accounts posted online recounting this experience including that of author Stephen King and 1920s silent film stars Norma, Constance, and Natalie Talmadge. As far as film and TV are concerned, notable examples where this story element has been used include The Cosby Show, Punky Brewster, Married with Children, Midnight Caller, The Simpsons, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Corina Corina, Friends, Dilbert, Gilmore Girls, Monk, The George Lopez Show, Drawn Together, 30 Rock, The Amazing World of Gumball, and Iron Man 3. But the very first instance I can find of its use 
was on Angie in 1979. I asked Eisenstock and Mintz about this and found the joke was inserted into the script by Larry Mintz. It was a joke that had originated with Emmy Award-winning comedy writer Stan Burns, who had written for The Steve Allen Show, The Smothers Brothers, and The Carol Burnett Show. And he had included this joke in an unproduced play. Larry Mintz borrowed this joke, which became the backstory for the never-seen Falco Patriarch and was endlessly reused by other writers over the last 40 years. When we come back, it's my conversation with writers and series developers Alan Eisenstock and Larry Mintz. You found a place where your friends will be That's why we hope you'll be watching ABC And we want you to know That this year again ABC's the one you can look to I'm very pleased to be able to talk to Alan Eisenstock and Larry Mintz today on Forgotten TV. TV writer producers of some of the classic shows of the 70s and 80s that uh, the Forgotten TV audience is going to remember, uh, like What's Happening, Sanford and Son, Mork and Mindy, and of course, Angie and others following those. And uh, so I'd, I'd like to welcome uh, Mr. Eisenstock and Mintz to uh, Forgotten TV today. Hi, Chris. Hey, Chris. Thanks for uh, having us. Well, thank you for agreeing to talk to me. It's uh, a thrill to be able to talk to you about uh, some of the, the classic shows that we grew up watching. Before we get into our conversation about Angie, I, I noted that you evidently both started your TV writing um, in the summer of 1976, writing for both What's Happening in Sanford and Son right around the same time. Um, At the same time. Okay. If you yeah. would talk to, a little bit to your experience about working on those shows, I mean, evidently that's the first TV writing that you that you did. And how? what was your experience as, as really as, as white men writing for black characters? I know that that was something that <laughs> those shows were criticized for at the time. And uh, I, I, I just thought I'd throw that out there to talk about your experience briefly as – uh, on on those shows in in that capacity, Larry, you want to yeah. take that? That's a third rail. Uh, you know, we were very careful about you know. Saying we never wrote in dialogue in dialect or anything like that. We were respectful, and um, I remember once a, a, a network executive came up to us and said, "You better move all the suckers and the fools 
and we asked them to find one in the script, and there weren't any. Um, yeah, I think today that would never happen, but back then it, it, it happened. And um, but I don't. It, for us, it wasn't an issue, and I hope for the actors, it wasn't an issue. Um, we did the first script we wrote was actually based on the movie Cooley High, which was an Eric Monty movie, which later morphed into what's happening. Um, so we were doing Sanford and Son at the time, and then I remember our, one of the producers, Saul Turtletown, came into our office and said, drop what you're doing, we just got picked up. Cooley High is now what's happening, and we need you to write a script for that. So we actually did two shows at once, and um, then after the, that year, we did just uh, what's happening. So it was amazing. We wrote a million scripts and we wrote the rest. And I don't think at the time, I mean, there were always um, African-American writers either on staff or contributing outside scripts. So, um, you know, I guess we tried to be as politically correct as possible, although looking back, it was probably not as politically correct as we thought. I mean, I think you're right about that entirely. A couple of things I remember too. First of all, in terms of the staff, I mean, really, it was it was Larry and me and and uh, Turtle Tob and Ornstein. There were other writers, as Larry said, who came in and out. But basically, it was really the four of us who wrote every episode. Um, and by writing every episode, I mean that we often would rewrite every episode as well. So even though there were episodes that didn't have our names on it, we actually wrote the episode. Um, we never looked at it as, I mean, it's, it's a strange thing to say. We never looked at it as a black show. Um, it just seemed to us like a show about a family. It's, and I think that if there was any sort of, uh, as Larry mentioned before, I mean, I think the cast would sometimes um, use some kind of um, maybe put in a word that we would not have thought of, you know, or um, say a line of dialogue, you know, to sort of make it more comfortable for them. But we just, we wrote a, a show about a family. Sanford and Son was basically, it was based on a, a white show from England called Steptoe and Son. Yeah. And to us, it was just a, right. it was a marriage, a father and son living together. And, you know, it just, we, we did the last season of Sanford and Son. That was when we got started. And so the yeah. show was very well established by the time we came aboard. And, and again, so it was never, I mean, when that, when the, I remember what Larry was talking about very well, when, when that executive came and, and was, you know, talking about, um, you know, suckers and fools in the script. I mean, it was kind of threw us off, to be honest, because we de we never had, there was never a conversation saying we want to do a show, an episode this week that's that's socially, that that's about the social conscience. It was a different time. It was, you know, whatever, 40 years ago or whatever it was, or 35 years ago. So it wasn't, it was a different time. And um, second season of, of what's happening, we did an episode where Shirley was hired as a, Basically, to, to cover the asses of the the company that hired her, right, right, they were diversifying. Yeah, and she was given a job where she didn't have anything to do. She was just a token. Yeah, um, and yeah, we, at that second season, we had Thad Mumford on staff. Right, um, and uh, Thad was, you know, was no longer with us, but a great guy. Yeah. So this led into writing for was it Mork and Mindy next? 
No, actually, we did more no, filming uh, after. That was after. Yeah, that was after, Angie. In the second season of What's Happening, one of the producers was a guy named Lloyd Schwartz. And Lloyd, his, his TV DNA was his dad was Sherwood Schwartz, who had created Gilligan's Island. Ah. And after that second season, Lloyd got a job as a development executive at ABC. And then Lloyd called us and said, do you want to guys run and write a pilot? And he basically pitched us a one-line pilot of Cinderella After the Ball, Rittenhouse Square, Philadelphia Doctor, uh, falls in love with uh, coffee shop waitress. And and that was what we, we pitched. It, it was around October. Of, uh, yeah, I was going to say, it was a strange time frame also because it was mid-season. It was, it was mid-season. Yeah, it was mid-season. It was not your right. typical uh, pilot season. The, the main uh, producer that we worked with, I mean, we kind of worked with him, was Dale McCraven, yes. who ultimately was, he produced and, cre- I mean, one of the creators of Mork and Mindy. So that's how we ended up getting into Mork and Mindy. Through Mork Dale. and Mindy and Angie. But we shared the same we shared the same H building on the Paramount lot. They right. actually threw it downstairs. And, and Dale was the executive producer of both shows. Okay. One of the great guys, by the way. Yeah. And so that that's what we were pitched. We were pitched that, and we took it upon ourselves to write this pilot, not knowing any of the back history or any of the the, the things that went on behind well, the scenes. Yeah, and not being told any of it either. It yeah. wasn't like it wasn't yeah. like. So, okay, oh, you're going to do it. So let me now sit you down and tell you the whole history of what went on before you. No, we never knew any of the, some of the things that you uh, asked us about off conversation, Chris, in terms of the history of Angie. We didn't know any of that. Okay. So the, the narrative is that ABC asked Gary Marshall to develop a show following Mork and Mindy after it became basically an instant hit for them on Thursday night. I guess so. Quite possibly, yeah. Yeah. Evidently, you you weren't uh, fully in in on all of the behind the scenes as far as that is concerned about the original ask. Not only not fully, but not at all. Okay. I would say, I would say zero. The number zero is is uh, appearing to me. And then after we wrote the pilot, uh, we we were arbitrated by a very talented comedy writer named Jared Dawson, who had written a pilot years before called Big Rosie which was based on a character who appeared in Happy Days or Laverne and Shirley. Yeah. Uh, that was a period piece. Ours was contemporary. We had no idea that there was any history. Um, we did eventually win the arbitration. Um, and then that was the first time we became aware of any prior work being done. But the two shows were different. I mean, our, we would pitch Cinderella marries a doctor, you know, Cinderella. Yeah. The ball. We really didn't know anything about, uh, you know, Nelson's pilot or, or anything like that. The first time we read it was during the arbitration. Yeah. There was a, there was a pilot of Angie's shot that we wrote a first pilot, which is yeah. what you're referring to. Yeah. There were actually two pilots that were shot with Donna. And then there was this other pilot script. I don't know whether okay. Belson's script was ever, uh, you know, produced. I, I really don't know, but we, the main reason that we did two pilots was, uh, it was Donna Pascal and another actor who played the part of Brad and nobody, he didn't quite work. And so we had to reshoot the entire uh, thing with a, then we, we began this big search for the right Brad. And also we found that Angie's family 
gave us more comedy than Brad's family. So yeah. in the pilot, in the first pilot, we, we, we dealt more with Brad and his family. Where in the second pilot, we dealt more with Angie and her family. That's right. Yeah. And we were blessed with Donna, with um, Doris Roberts as her mom and Deborah Lee Scott as her sister. Yeah. Um, and it's you know, a, a completely different cast other than Donna. Okay. Yeah. So who do you recall who was pe- was cast instead of Robert in the first pilot? Yes. Yeah. Go ahead. I don't. I, you know his name. His name is John Corcus. John Corcus. That's right. Okay. Yeah. No problem. He's a nice. No, no it never. No. It's just, it happens. It happens a lot. You know where somebody is recasting. It happens. It's, it happens more often than people think. Yeah. No. He was cast, and and you know the other thing that that happens that people may not aware of is that. There's a lot, you know, time is always ticking. You know, you don't really, if you don't have the leisure of saying, well, we'll just keep doing this until we get it right. You know, you have to do it. You know, things are under a lot of time pressure that we're even, you know, we're less aware of it, but we're very aware of it. You know, so we, you know, we had to do this pilot and we did the pilot and, um, it wasn't right in terms of the casting. And then we had to go back to the drawing board. As Larry said, we rewrote some of the stuff and we, um, and we, we had to do this whole casting thing too. It was both a process of rewriting and casting all over again, right. once we did the first pilot. And you're okay. also subject to who's available at any given time. And, and another thing is, as, as Alan reminded me is that, in the in the original pilot, we backed it up to the point where we didn't want them to be married so quickly. We thought that there was more comedy and more drama in seeing the relationship develop. And I think in the first pilot, they were already married. This was yep. honeymoon or something. So yep. we were able to convince the network to let us back it up a little bit to see at least some of the courtship. Um, and if, if we had our druthers, we might have backed it up even more, but there was pressure to get them married, so we had to stall it for a few shows. Yeah. They may have gotten married in the third or fourth episode, I think, right? When we, I mean, we wanted to do it. Was it was very we fast, said, yeah. You know, let's not even worry about when they get married because, they, you know, this is, um, you know, they're from two different worlds, and so let's explore the two different worlds for a while. I think there could be a lot of fun in, in that, but the network wanted them to be married immediately. Yeah, and so I read online that Di- Different Worlds is supposedly the first title, or the working title of the show before it was named Angie. Is that your recollection? Never heard of it. Not me. I don't, I don't remember. <laughs> I mean, I don't remember very much, but I certainly don't remember that. Um, but no, I, I don't remember that ever being a title for the One show. One of those invented after the fact tidbits that... Uh, that pops its way into uh, yeah. books and, and uh, website who knows what the origin of that is. It, it's so funny. It, it's so funny how that is, is that like, you know, um, when a show's a hit, everybody takes credit for it. And everybody was in the room that it happens. When the show's a bomb, nobody was in the room. It's like there was, it was an empty room. Spontaneous generation. Yeah. Uh, John Corcus then had been on, um, the Mary Tyler Moore Show and All in the Family and Maude? Mm-hmm. This yeah. is the same person we're I talking guess, about. I okay. guess, but, but not a. Um, I guess maybe he was recurring or something. But I don't think no, he he, these, were, these were one off. Yeah, these were one off roles. He, he uh, in fact, until he was on the HBO series Oz, I think, it was his only regular ongoing role. Yeah. But um, he's, okay. he's got a quirky style. He's, you know, he's 
terrific actor. Just sometimes, you know, television you know, chemistry. In retrospect, I actually am asking myself, what were we thinking? Because I don't think he was. But again, you know, as we said before, in terms of availability and time pressure, um, sometimes he may have been the best option. I, I mean, I'll say this, and, and I, you know, I think one of the things that Larry and I did very well was casting. So, I mean, we weren't 100%. We messed up, uh, but we were pretty good at that. And so we cast Urkel. Yeah, we cast Urkel. Well, while we're on the casting, uh, another person was up for the role of Brad, uh, other than yeah. Robert, which uh, was um, a Mark Harmon, who had appeared Correct. in the same episode that Robert Hayes appeared in on Laverne and Shirley with yeah. uh, when that original uh, proto Rosie character appeared in that uh, in that same episode that laser, later became developed as the character Big Rosie uh, Greenbaum. Well, now this is so. I mean, and Larry, unless you remember, see, I don't remember ever knowing that. I don't think that I ever knew that they were in that same episode. Or no. I, I, I know this is sort of news. Well, you know, it was kind of. I mean, it had gotten down to. I mean, you know, we we cast and read and tested a lot of people, and uh, you know, for the part of Brad and and. You know, we both, Larry and I discussed before that it actually got down to there were three choices. The three choices were Bob Hayes, Mark Harmon, and a guy named A.C. Weary. And we had a big meeting. We had a meeting of... Parsi I mean, was, was in the meeting. Yeah, Tom it was Miller and Boyette. Tom Boyette. Miller and Boyette. And, and I know Bob Ellison, I remember that, and other... And there must have been a dozen people. And um, to be honest with you, uh, Mark Harmon was, he was really the first choice. If, if you were going to pick a, the, the person who got the most votes, Mark Harmon got the most votes. And it was almost like we went around, it was like a tribunal or something, a council meeting. We went around this table and the, I remember only the two, the only two people who said, um, Bob Hayes, without a doubt, were Larry and me. And then when we got around to the network, they said, how could you pick anybody else but Bob Hayes? And it was a, it was a, you know, it was sort of the stunned silence because he did seem like the obvious choice to us, but almost everybody else wanted Mark Harmon. Um, Bob was, Bob was, Bob was a little bit of an everyman. He was very funny, very charming. One of the great mysteries to me is why he didn't have, I mean, well, I don't want to say, I just think he was so talented and, you know, did the, yeah. the plane, and, I, you know, I thought he was destined for superstardom. And, and I think the reason that we clearly saw him as as right for the role is that it, is a, it was a sitcom and we needed somebody who could be charming and, and handsome and you could believe he was a doctor, but he also could do a joke and he, and he had a sense of humor. And Mark, you know, obviously has done incredibly well, but I wouldn't have cast him maybe ever as the lead in a sitcom. That was Alan. I just want to clear that up right now. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't, I, I won't back off from that. I, I think he would agree. I don't, I don't think that he would say, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm the guy that you should go to at any time you, that you want a sitcom lead. Yeah. Um, Not a lot of gags in NCIS. No, but and and he does it well. He does that very well. And he did, he's done so a bit of comedy. I mean, he was in um, the summer school, um, 
it, that was uh, that was fairly fairly well received. Um, he 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 does well in the in lighter roles as well as some of the more serious stuff. I was going to say lighter roles is different than than comedy. I mean, we really tried to make Angie funny, mm-hmm. and I think that we needed somebody uh, to, who could do really a joke. could do a joke. And I think sure. that um, w- there was no question that Bob Hayes was so perfect for the part. Just, I mean, he was he was just perfect. And this was the first uh, major role for him. Uh, this was pre-airplane. Yeah. And of course, you yeah. know, he possibly got considered uh, on airplane, which was also being filmed by Paramount um, due to the fact that he was he was working there on the set um, and, and read it was for the that. Same, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was the same casting director. I think it was our casting director who also cast airplane. Yeah. Joel Thurman, Phyllis Glick. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I believe they were both the ones who cast um, who cast airplane and cast um cast Angie with us. And, um, yeah, I mean, there's no question. I mean, Bob Hayes is a very talented guy. Oh, without doubt. Um, so Donna, but though was always involved in Angie. I mean, she was, she was the title character from, from the very beginning, from what I read. Well, we read other actresses. I mean, I think Donna was always the inside, had the inside track. Um, we didn't know that, that Gary had, you know, pitched her or anything. Again, you know, we were in the dark about a lot of stuff, but we did I, I, other actresses. Yeah, we did. I think, you know, in our minds, again, not knowing all the information or, you know, being told sort of like, okay, this is what you have to do. This is what you can do. Um, I think in our minds, we thought that we were, we were going to do a show that may have starred somebody along the lines of Penny Marshall. That we thought that that's sort of the inspiration. You know, it's kind of penny, um, blue collar, blue collar, edgy, and and Donna is lovely and sweet, but I don't know if I would call her edgy. And so I think that we were in some ways searching, you know, always knowing that I, I think that Donna was sort of there that, you know, we would sort of look at other people as well. I So I do remember there were some casting uh, attempts but nobody was really, I don't know if anybody was really considered seriously at all, other than Donna. Correct. Okay. So I had included in my notes that uh, that idea about the, the, the Falco patriarch that was missing from the beginning um, and how that, you know, it was the recurring joke that he had, had gone out for cigarettes 19 years earlier. That is something that I'm sure you're aware has been reused on on numerous shows, including you know Married with Children, which you both worked on. I think that was Larry's joke. I think it was a uh, joke I that Larry that's, wrote, that's, and that it's was a joke that Larry stole. Okay, well, <laughs> all right. Well, I'm trying to give you credit, but I yeah. think it was a joke that Larry wrote, and um, it became, I guess, it became a biography. But it was, the punchline it was, was, and the thing that bothered her the most was he didn't smoke. <laughs> yeah. So the, the yeah. fact that he went out for cigarettes and never came back is the setup. Yeah. The one was, you know, the thing that bothers me the most is he didn't smoke. <laughs> I, when I first started writing, I worked with a very talented comedy writer named Stan Burns, and Stan had had been a variety writer, um, you know, Carol Burnett and you know Mac Davis and all the all the great variety shows. I, I, and I was working with Stan and. He, he told me about a joke in a play of his that was never produced. And I always remembered the joke. And so um, I, 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 I borrowed it. 
But um, and I don't know that that was the first time it was ever used either. I'm mean, right. not sure Stan invented it or not, but I'm gonna. I did. It wasn't. I, I pitched the joke. I took credit for the joke, but it's time I fessed up. I stole the joke. It's the first time I've ever found it on a, a television show. So let's say that. Okay. I would. So I would take credit for it. Not you know, uh, not me, but I'm giving Larry. And I was the first one to ever steal it and use it in television. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Most notably, The Simpsons with Nelson Muntz, whose uh, mm-hmm. father went out for cigarettes and never came back. So, um, well, I think they were all big fans of Angie, and I think they watched the show and they stole the joke. There you go. Doris, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go with that. And no one could do a joke better than Doris Roberts. Oh, anyway. Doris was she was the master. And we, we we would end up being able to write to her because she would, she had this great kind of undercut sort of style, you know, she, Oh, you're just so beautiful. I love it. Never going to happen. You know, she was right. You know, she, she was just great at that. She could do a mislead as well as anybody. Yeah. She really worked well as that, that working class, um, Italian mother character. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I don't think she changed. I don't think the character, was too much different in Raymond. I think it was pretty much the same character, if I'm, if I may say. I don't know. Yeah, I, I would. I would say it was very similar. Yeah, it's, it's Doris doing what Doris did best. There you go. You know, I just want to say one of the things that was. I mean, we loved that cast. We weren't there. We we're only there for the first season, but you know, this was a wonderful cast, and we became friendly pretty much with, I think, all of them. I would say. Beverly Scott was terrific. Yeah, and you know, and Bob was great, and uh, Diane Robbins, Sharon Spellman, Tammy Lauren. They were yeah, all- I mean, we became friends with Doris. We would go to parties at her house, and um, you know, she it, it was it was a wonderful experience as far as the cast is concerned. John Randolph. While we're talking about the cast, that what that that initial episode or that time when when he kept picking up Donna. Um, yeah. was that, who, was that somebody's idea? Whose idea was that? Was that something that they did impromptu on set and came up with or, cause it was physically funny due to their different heights. I, as far as I know, it was either the director or John Randolph who came up with it cause we saw it. Yeah. It terrific. And John Randolph was a really, I mean, a great actor. And I, yeah, he was a wonderful actor. Yeah. I believe he was even a blacklisted actor during the, you know, the yeah. back days and just, you know, to get someone like that. I don't think we wrote that. I think it's just, they they must have done that uh, on set, I guess. At some point, you guys are didn't, you know, you were no longer involved with the show and, and went on to, to work on Mork and Mindy and other things. Yeah. And other producers and writers took over uh, for Angie, particularly in the second season. Um, was it uh, was it that you were asked to, to simply to work on other shows or they just wanted other people to come on and, and we change actually, up the show? I mean, the, the truth is we were actually asked to continue. They wanted to keep us, but um, I, I guess mainly, I mean, I know I felt exhausted after well, all of three shows in two seasons when we did Stanford and, and what's happening at the same time, then, then what's happening. And then right after that, we went into um, the, the Angie pilot. And then yeah. the first pilot was, was shelved the second pilot, usually you have lead time between a pilot being picked up and air, but because we didn't do, we did the second pilot and a week later we were going on the air. We had no lead time whatsoever. 
And so we had to do 12, ep- 12 more episodes very quickly. And so I think, and I also want to say that in addition to that, and Larry's 100% right, this was a grueling show to shoot because, and I'm not even sure why exactly, but I'm pretty sure I'm right about this. I think we shot the show on a Tuesday night and then we did the, 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 um, the read-throughs on a Wednesday morning. And, you know, when you do a sitcom, you, you shoot it, at least back then, you do it with, in front of a live audience. And then after you do it in front of the live audience, you let the audience go and then you do what are known as pickups, which are either <laughs> twice in front of a live audience. Yeah. But my recollection is, I mean, we would stay forever. Yeah. I mean, and so you would end up literally staying, reshooting the entire show until midnight, one, two in the morning, and then turn around and have to do a run through. I'm sorry, a a read through the next morning. So in addition to doing all those, what, what Larry described, it was a very grueling schedule. We were exhausted when we so we turned it down we 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 said no we're not going to we 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 can't we're not going to do it and i don't know whether there was a creative meeting about i mean i don't honest to god know anything about the second season with the marys or anything like that because i never watched it i never Ah. paid any attention to it but i don't know if that was something that was uh suggested before we decided, no, we're not going to do this, or if that was something that the new people brought in. I, I don't know. We, you know. we were happy to take a lesser role as contributing writers on Mork, which gave us a little time to recover. I know it sounds crazy, but we were a little crispy. Yeah. Yeah. And we hoped that, you know, the show could continue, you know. I, I mean, I know just hearing about sort of the creative direction they went, in, it seemed unrecognizable to me. Yes. And um, I didn't, so I don't know, again, I didn't, I never saw it, so I can't personally say. It was multiple changes. It wasn't just like the show shifted and now it was this. Um, you know, it changed nights and then uh, they focused, it was more of an at home instead of at the new house, not the coffee shop. So mm-hmm. they had a completely new set. And then they decide to sell the coffee shop and then it, now it's a beauty salon and we have all these new characters and other characters were dropped. So, um, you, you know, it was changed. It changed night and times four times. Well, that, that, that indicates and that's a clear sign of trouble. That's a clear sign of they're really looking for something. They're looking for some answers. You don't, in other words, especially in a sitcom, when something's working, you don't change it. If it ain't broke, you don't try to fix it. That's right. So it mm-hmm. seems like they were trying to fix something on the fly continuously. And, in, and it's been my experience and Alan's experience that beauty shops, for some reason, I'm, I'm sure if Gary Marshall were alive, he'd have a dead-on reason <laughs> why beauty shops aren't funny. And he'd be right. But I don't know why. But beauty shops, you, you think of all the businesses that have been portrayed in, in TV shows. And beauty shops, not. So, I mean, the answer to the question is simply we didn't choose to continue with the show. Okay. Right. We, we were offered it, and then I, I can't speak to uh, what was done to the show because we really don't, we don't know and we had no part in it. Okay. They didn't ask us to, to weigh in on anything, and, and you know, nothing there was any bad blood. We just, right. that was it. No, we, we ultimately, you know, as I said, we ended up working on more. It was the same family of, 
of creative people. Family Matters, step by step, all mm-hmm. yeah. that show. So there was no animosity. I think they always thought that we were talented, and they always tried to figure out a way to make us part of their family. Yeah, yeah I don't know. And, and and there was all those shows being shot at the same time, like one of you mentioned um, at, at Paramount Studios, where you had you know Mork and Mindy and Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley and Taxi, yeah. and at yep. one point yes. Bad News Bears. Mm. All filming at the same time, and some of those sets were just right. The sound stages were one right after the other. That's right. That's yeah. if you shared a stage with other shows. That's why if okay. they were shooting on this day, you were shooting on that day, and they'd move the sets in and out. Sometimes you had your own stage with a you know where permanent sets were standing. But yeah, it was a busy place. Yep. And you did have some of those crossover from the guest stars, like uh, Danny DeVito popping in from Taxi. Right. You know, he was uh, Uncle Cheech, and and you had uh, some of the other characters, right. some of the kids uh, from the Bad News Bears show up. You had Mino Pelusi. They, and... they do that for sweeps. They get, you know, they get a, uh, they try to do those things, those stunt stunt casting. Oh, okay. And and I think as we mentioned before, maybe we didn't was um, it also happened with writers too. I mean, we would, you know, we, again, in that sort of Paramount world, there would be uh, Jeff Franklin, who was uh, the sort of creative force behind Full House. He did an episode of Angie uh, with us, and um, we ended up doing Mork and Mindy. So there was, there was some crossover in terms of writing, too. We would consult on uh, other shows that were, you know, pilots that were being shot. Yeah. It was a good time. Yeah. And Gary Marshall was the sort of, you know, den father of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've said this before, but and just to throw it out, Gary was the single smartest person I ever met in show business. He was, he was a really remarkable guy and, and a great talent. And, um, he, you know, he had, a, he had a real sort of vision of how to do this. I agree. I mean, I guess I'm number two then. Okay. Yes, you would be number two. <laughs> He's definitely credited with ABC's move from what was number three uh, to the number one network by the yeah. later in the mid mid seventies, right. primarily due to happy days. And then Laverne and Shirley right. from all of the, the, the things that have been written about him. It mentions that he was always under pressure to create another show. We need another show, Gary. And um, Angie and others came out of that. You, you had, uh, you had other spinoffs. You had Blansky's Beauties and making it was another making one. it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that was good, Chris. <laughs> well, I, that's uh, I've I've uh, played that theme song before. That um, that definitely epitomized the the era. You know that your show is going to be a flash in the pan, probably when it's based on a, a fad that <laughs> that uh, was popular at the time. Yeah. Well, well, Gary had a a very smart approach in terms of selling things. I mean, everybody else would meet the network, even the people who were really, really successful and they would do a pilot or whatever. Gary would, as he did with Angie, would, would, um, he would go to the network and he would say, instead of, I have an idea and do some sort of a pitch, he would say, did you see Laverne and Shirley with uh, Rosie? The other, I want to do a show with Rosie. And the network would go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So he would, so uh, um, an episode of a series would, in effect, become his, his pilot reel. Ronnie Howland, Gary's sister, and Penny's sister, saw um, Robin Williams at the comedy store, one of the places, the improv, 
and brought him to Gary's attention. And so one of the things that Gary did was he put him in an episode of Happy Days. Instead of saying, I want to do a show about an alien, he said, did you watch Happy Days last night? And That's right. He did. Yeah. 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 So, but Ronnie Hallen is credited, with, or she is now, with you know, she discovered Robin at, at, you know, at one of the comedy clubs. I'm sure someone would have discovered him eventually. It wasn't oh, like the, uh, you know, yeah. sort of like yeah, the Pacific I, Ocean. Somebody eventually would have found it. But yeah, I think you may be right about that. I read, I read uh, recently read the book about Robin, and um, it, that sounds that sounds right. Yeah. And I've I've seen the the accounts where he would pop onto the set of Angie. And, um, you know, cut up <laughs> in between takes um, and, you know, leave just as suddenly with everybody laughing. Yeah. I remember one time, and I don't know if we were on doing Angie or I had to be, we were doing Angie. I, he came into our office. And I don't know if you were there, Larry, but he came into our, it was, he made a brief cameo appearance um, at my desk and did stick. <laughs> did shtick on the desk, would pick up, you know, picked up everything on the desk, did a thing, held an ashtray to his, you know, did, and then he left. Yep. That, that, so. that's, that's exactly in line with, uh, with, you know, all of his, uh, appearances and, and the accounts of, uh, working with him. Yeah. So hard to believe that he's not. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. A very sweet guy, whatever, you know, interaction we had. He was a very, he was a sweetheart of a guy. So after Angie, you guys continued to work with Miller Boyette on different shows. And I know you mentioned yeah, one. A bit of a gap. Yeah, we did. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there was one I barely am aware of called Going Places. Oh. Which, yeah. uh, <laughs> that was a, funny because Bob Gifford and Howard Adler were the creators of Going Places, and Bob is my current writing partner. Okay. Very sweet guy, too. Yeah. A, lo- a lovely guy. After that, I think we did step by step. I don't think we we actually did more episodes of Going Places than of Angie. If you, when you think about it, yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> so we did that in between Family Matters and Step by Step. Right. So your work was definitely shown on uh, Friday Night ABC Television. PTIF tattooed on my butt. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I can attest to that. But I have to take my word on that. No, take mine too. <laughs> so Ur- so Urkel, you guys mentioned Urkel earlier. Um, yeah. I, I did read that you were responsible for casting Urkel. You're kidding. No. They got, so they got that right. So Alan wrote another book. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's true. That's true. That's that was actually, that was a sort of, I mean, I don't know what where you read it or what it said, but the, the show that we were doing, Family Matters at the time was a completely different kind of show. It featured um, the parents, and the word we got was that they were about to cancel the show because Full House was the lead in, and we were killing it in terms it of the rating. The show was skewing too old. And they said, you got to get some kids in here and um, because nobody cares about watching these these. You know, and so we got the word from the network that we had to cast. So we, we, you know, we had to f- put more kids in the show. So we had like four kids, I think. Bickley and Warren had written a script. I'm going to, you know, I got to give credit what credit is due. Bickley and Warren had written a script where Laura, everybody's trying to get Laura a date for the prom. Yeah. And three, three different dates. And Rachel gets her a date. Carl gets her a date. And I guess Harriet got her a date. Right. And, but there were like four kids that we were given the job. And we literally cast these four kids. 
there were three that were sort of whoever they were, and then we we had the there was Steve Urkel, the part of Steve Urkel, and Julio White came in, and uh, he came in character. He wore his he had a briefcase. He had his pants hiked up to his <laughs> neck. He had these big glasses on. I think they were his father's glasses. And he walked in and said, hi, I'm Steve. And I said uh, to myself, I said, no, you're Mickey Mantle. That's who you are. <laughs> yeah. And so um, there was, I, I don't want to mention his name, but there, it was Larry and me and another producer on the show. And Jaleel read the show and he left and we were like stunned into silence. And the other producer said, I didn't like him. And I said, you know what? I don't care. You lose. And so we just cast him right then. There was no question in my mind that we had just we were just we just got hit by a bolt of lightning. I was relieved because casting kids is tough. You know, and I was relieved that we had gotten someone funny. You know, a lot of kids laugh at their own jokes. They don't, they can't deliver a joke without smiling. And, you know, I was just relieved that we found a guy that could do the funny, the funny character well. Um, And I think as the week progressed, you know, I think at the reading, I remember that guest stars or day players usually don't get a lot of attention at the table. And he was getting huge laughs at the reading. And I think, you know, everybody was looking down, who's this kid? And um, so, I mean, I'll, I'll confess, I, you know, I was relieved more than amazed. <laughs> I was amazed. I have to tell you, I was amazed. I thought this was, okay, we got something here. And that's so often a sign of, well, you know, the, the, the phrase jumping the shark, which originated on, on Happy Days, um, right. when a, a new character is added. Um, and you know, you get the cousin Oliver syndrome where the, you know, the, the existing characters have grown, but the new younger character is cast as to try to refresh the show a little bit. And often that does not work. Um, but you know, clearly sometimes you have, uh, you have lightning that strikes and, uh, which is clearly what happened here. You know, the honest to God truth is that after Julia was cast, I mean, they may as well have changed the name of the show to Urkel. Yeah. I mean, you know, it was all about him and he was the driving force of that show. And, and it's a kind of, you're right. It's not really a common thing. It's something that doesn't happen very often, but in this particular case, he, he, he not only, he saved the show and, um, you know, it was a sort of, and I guess in sitcom history, I guess it was a relatively big moment. He had to change the theme song because at the beginning there was a beautiful song by Louis Armstrong. Um, yeah, and but again the show was skewing older and his lead-in was was uh, Full House, and so um, the show. A lot of times the shows get a little revamping. You know, it's always a work in progress, and you know sometimes things happen. Like when when Cheers lost Coach, they they got Woody. I mean sometimes you know things work out even during. You know, and someone throws you a curveball, but you know you're always trying to tweak the show. You know, right? Especially the first season, you're trying to figure out your, you know, the strengths and the weaknesses, and you know. So, and, and of course, you know, step by step, you that that lasted incredible seven, I think seven years. I guess, I guess so. Uh, yeah. And and you worked on Married with Children. 
Yeah. And which again integrated that uh, that trope of the the parent that went out for cigarettes and never came back on a, a particular supporting character. You see what you started, Larry? <laughs> yeah. I still from the best. <laughs> so Alan, I know that you've uh, you basically stopped writing for TV and went into writing books. Yeah. It's been a long time now. It's been over yeah. twenty years. I oh think. yeah. Did you want to mention any any of your recent uh, material that uh, that we? I, I know that you did the Raiders. Uh, you were you wrote the yes. book about the Raiders. Yes, I wrote which the I, Raiders about the Raiders. Uh, that was amazing. The kids who remade Raiders of the Lost Ark. I did that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've been doing books. Uh, knock knock on wood, pretty consistently since uh, I guess nineteen ninety nine or two thousand. And uh, um, I have a book coming out in May that I've written with a lawyer by the name of Jared Adams. It'll be called Redeeming Justice. And, uh, yeah, I just, uh, you know, keep doing books. I like the life of just being sort of home in my uh, home office and not seeing anyone or leaving. And I'm a collaborator, so uh, I've, I've done a, a TV movie. Uh, let's see, worked on a series with Bob uh with Kelsey Graham and Martin Lawrence, which mm-hmm. we did 10 episodes. Um, Bob and I just finished a script that we are specking based on a book that we optioned, a true crime book. So just keep going. You know, it's, it's cheaper than therapy. <laughs> yeah. And you, you have a, a book, uh, a recent uh, book as well with Marvin Wolf. Oh, no, that was, I think Marvin, oh yeah. Marvin, and I wrote a TV, a TV movie. Uh, it was a murder mystery for USA. And uh, we sold them two ideas. One we wrote, one someone else wrote. And then I think, yeah, Marvin somehow put together something into a book. But, um, yeah, Marvin's Marvin's also a very prolific writer, book writer mostly. And, yeah, so uh, I like to be in the room with people. And, you know, I was, thankfully, Alan didn't mind being in a room with me. But after that, <laughs> it got too crowded. Yeah, it was too many people for me, the, t- yeah. the two the two of us was just too much. I mean, some of the things we, I mean, my best, my most enjoyable times writing with Alan would when the two of us would be in a room writing and um, doing what we did. Um, but television is very collaborative. You know, we used to take scripts and just rewrite them ourselves because that's what, you know, that was what we did best. So Alan, I know you're, you're on the, on the, the web at alaneisenstock.com. Uh, and yes. people can see yes, your your array of books there that you've written, and uh, and and get in touch with you there. And please visit me, and I'm happy to uh, talk to you about anything. Fantastic. And Larry, did you have a website, or uh, do you interact with people online at all? No. Well, there we go. I don't. So I, I have no profile. I'm not trending. I'm not. I have no followers. I've become Alan. Um, <laughs> I want to thank you both for taking the time to be out with us on here on Forgotten TV. Well, thank you, and uh, just give us a shout when it may be uh, dropping the podcast. We look forward to hearing it. After Angie, Donna Pascal, following Angie, made the guest star rounds twice on Fantasy Island, five times on The Love Boat, and three times on Hotel. She was also cast on a groundbreaking role on ABC's All My Children, where she played the first lesbian character on a daytime serial. In 1987, she found herself cast in another series, playing the mother of the half-alien 
Evie, played by Maureen Flanagan, on four seasons of the syndicated Out of This World, where Angie even got referenced on the show. 4-3, Angie. Oh, that had that really cute girl on it. Her next series started in the year 2000, where she played the mother of the Stevens family on three seasons of Disney's Even Stevens. In 2012, she appeared along with other 70s TV stars, Carolita White, Susan Olsen, Jerry Jewell, and Ted Lang, in Michael Vaccaro's comedy web series, Child of the 70s, viewable on YouTube. Recently, you can catch her on CW's The Flash, as Dr. Sharon Finkel, unwitting therapist to the Arrowverse superheroes. Following the incredible success of Airplane in the summer of 1980, Robert Hayes' life changed as multiple agents suddenly wanted to handle him, and one movie role after another presented itself. Airplane to the sequel, Take This Job and Shove It, 1983's Trench Coat with Margot Kidder, Cat's Eye in 1985, but there was one he missed out on. Due to a miscommunication or misunderstanding between film casting and his agents, Hayes notably missed out on the role of Alan Bauer in 1984's Splash, a role that ended up going to Tom Hanks. In 1986, producers James Henerson, James Hirsch, and Michael Douglas tapped Hayes for the lead role on ABC's Starman a TV series follow-up to the 1984 feature film. The series was well-received by fans and was endorsed by various PTAs as well as Scholastic Magazine for outstanding family viewing without the inclusion of sex and violence. And Hayes even directed an episode. In a surprise move following a full-season run as producers were making plans for a second, ABC chose not to renew the show. After significant fan outcry, there was some talk about taking the show to first-run syndication, as was becoming popular at the time. But co-star Christopher Daniel Barnes had moved on to another series, and Henerson Hirsch Productions soon dissolved. Starman is fully considered in episode 20 of Forgotten TV. Hayes next found himself cast in another series for NBC called FM for their 1989 fall season. FM was a Wednesday night hammock show for NBC, a workplace comedy set at a radio station that co-starred Patricia Richardson. 1993 was a busy year. Hayes appeared in the short-lived summer sitcom Cutters for CBS, as well as several TV movies. In theaters, he co-starred with Peter Weller in the now nearly forgotten action comedy 50-50 for Canon Pictures. Peter Weller. I got a plan. And Robert Hayes. Yeah! A full frontal assault is your plan? That's the element of surprise. Suicide is always surprising. Are taking chances. Would it help if I promise not to try it again? Which at best... Go ahead. Shoot them both. I think you've just been fired. Are 50-50. And he was in the Disney adventure, Homeward Bound, The Incredible Journey. Later in the 90s, he began to do voice acting becoming the voice of Tony Stark, otherwise known as Iron Man, in three different 1990s Marvel animated productions. And again tried his hand as a regular in a series, this time for the WB Network, in the short-lived Kelly Kelly alongside Shelley Long. 
You may have also spotted him on The Outer Limits, That 70s Show, or Spin City, among around 20 appearances in film and TV since the turn of the millennium. In 2007, a surfing accident on the island of Kauai shattered vertebra in his neck. He literally held his own head still in his hands as a friend drove him 45 minutes to the nearest hospital. This move likely saved him from becoming quadriplegic or even from death. Now 73, Hayes still maintains his van Buster, is somewhat active on social media, and pre-pandemic was still making a few public appearances. You can currently find him on Cameo, where you can chat with the actor and receive a personalized video message. In the fall of 1980, Sharon Spellman appeared on Flow as Castleberry family member Duchess. She continued to be a regular guest actress on shows throughout the 80s on Lou Grant, Quincy, Barney Miller, The Golden Girls, Amazing Stories, and more. Her IMDb credits are incomplete and omit several TV appearances, which include six TV pilots with Larry Linville, Andy Griffith, Hal Linden, Rob Reiner, and Howie Mandel. Even though she continued to work fairly regularly on television, her first love was the stage. And when an opportunity arose to rejoin the A Solo Repertory Company in 1996 came along, she happily accepted and worked at the Asolo until 2010. Now 78, she lives with husband Stephen Johnson in Florida, saying she's now officially retired and couldn't be more happy about it. Deborah Lee Scott was cast in a few movies following Angie, including Police Academy and Police Academy 3 back in training, before she traded in a life in front of the camera for one behind the scenes as a talent agent for New York City's empowered artists. In 1995, she met a police officer at a Greenwich Village bar who proposed to her five years later, and they were due to be married in March 2002. However, he took the call for overtime one Tuesday morning in September. He liked to take extra shifts during the week to have extra time with Deborah Lee on the weekends. But this Tuesday morning was on September 11, 2001, and John Dennis Levi, a 17-year Port Authority police officer, was killed as the World Trade Center came falling down. Levi was one of 60 New York City and Port Authority police officers killed in the line that day. A few years later, she moved to Florida to help her ailing sister. Friends and family say she was never the same and never really got over the loss of her fiancé. She reportedly developed a drinking addiction, which severely impacted her health. One day collapsing into a coma for several days from which she did awaken, but three days after being released from the hospital, she lay down to take a nap and never woke up. Deborah Lee Scott passed away April 5, 2005, at age 52. Doris Roberts, following Angie, was a regular on the short-lived Irma Bombeck series Maggie in 1981. She worked quite regularly from then on, among around 40-some appearances on various series and TV movies, she was a regular as Mildred Krebs on seasons 2 through 5 of Remington Steel, 
and the short-lived series The Boys and Dream On in 1993. Before being cast in the role she is perhaps best remembered for. In 1996, she joined the cast of the Ray Romano series, Everybody Loves Raymond, on 210 episodes of that modern classic sitcom. Roberts earned seven Emmy nominations and four wins for her colorful depiction of Marie, the Barone family matriarch. Her motherly presence continued to grace various TV series as she continued to work regularly up to 2016 when she died of a stroke at age 90. Immediately following Angie, young Tammy Lauren went right into working on the Miller Boyette sitcom Out of the Blue and Gary Marshall's Who's Watching the Kids, both produced by Paramount Television. Appearing regularly on television throughout the 80s, she was also featured on Disney's The Last Flight of Noah's Ark. In the 90s, she found herself in recurring roles on Dave's World, Martial Law, and Home Improvement, among other shows, and was a regular on ABC's critically acclaimed Homefront. And she finally got lead roles on the horror films I Saw What You Did in 1988 and Wishmaster in 1997. Now 52, she seems to have taken a break from acting and quietly lives with her husband out of the public eye in the L.A. area. John Randolph, following Angie, made numerous guest appearances on TV throughout the 80s and 90s, including once on Seinfeld, playing George's father in the original series airing. However, once the role was recast with Jerry Stiller, his scenes were reshot for syndication. Randolph was also in the Jessica Lange film Francis in 1982, Pritzi's Honor in 1985, and you might remember his hilarious appearance as Clark Sr. on 1989's Christmas Vacation. The Tony Award-winning actor died in 2004 at age 88. Angie did have some limited broadcasts overseas. I do find that it aired in Australia, Canada, and the Netherlands, and in the summer of 1985, ABC reran the show on their daytime morning schedule before the daytime serials, and this is where I first saw the show. It later ran on cable network TV Land. In 2017, Visual Entertainment, who specializes in the release of TV favorites, released the series on a three-disc DVD set, and it is currently in print and available. The DVD looks to have been mastered from existing 35mm film prints of the series, with some film scratches, speckles, and color fading evident in some clips. But overall, the quality is fairly good for an over 40-year-old TV show that has not undergone expensive restoration and remastering. Angie was a perfectly serviceable sitcom with likable actors. However, it fell somewhat short of being a television classic in the vein of other Gary Marshall sitcoms, which set a very high bar. Perhaps the writing and situation behind the comedy just weren't that distinctive. As a result, the show performed best, sandwiched between two stronger performing shows. Good enough to keep viewers tuned in, but not quite strong enough to be a lead-in show for the evening. It truly was best as a hammock show, as we've seen. Indeed, Gary Marshall echoed these thoughts himself. The show was sweet for a year and went well with Mark and Mindy on Thursdays. 
but it didn't last beyond that. If I'm completely honest with myself, I have to say Angie as a sitcom just wasn't funny enough. We tried, but just couldn't take it to a higher comedy level. The lack of consistency with the shifting producers and story directions undoubtedly contributed to the failure of the show to take it to that higher level. While originally emphasizing the cultural differences between the two families, in the second season, the show was watered down with more generic, much more broadly played situational and physical comedy, and added characters, the Three Marys, Butler Phipps, wacky hairstylist Gianni, Teresa's friends. This was even more evident after it was retooled, first with Brad and Angie moving from the more affluent historic mansion into the scaled-down townhouse, perhaps in an effort to be more relatable to the audience. Then the work setting, also moving from the coffee shop to a beauty shop in episode 15, the result of second-season showrunner Leonora Thuna tinkering with the format at the behest of ABC. After that, it seemed like a completely different show. Angie seemed to meld into upper-class life with Brad and Butler Phipps with no real hardships in life. All problems solved by money. Angie bored at home, Brad buys her the coffee shop. Angie wants a new house of her own, she buys one. Tired of her coffee shop, Angie buys a beauty shop and hires her family. Angie depressed during winter, Brad springs for an impromptu trip to the Virgin Islands, and so on. This isn't any criticism of the actors, but rather of how the characters and situations were written. Sharon Spellman shared her thoughts with Forgotten TV on Season 2. The second season was not very much fun. My theory? ABC thought we were stronger than we were, and kept moving us around. They had all these popular sitcoms and spread them all out, evidently thinking that an audience would follow. We had been doubled up with Mork and Mindy, a fabulous lead-in. But when ABC put us in an 8 p.m. lead-in for something else, down went the ratings. Also, when Lee Thuna came in, so did big changes, and not for the better. For example, instead of a mansion, Brad and Angie moved into a small beige condo with a butler. Dr. Brad had his office downstairs, which made more situations possible, but killed a lot of the mismatched comedy. And Angie bought a beauty salon. I suspected it was to bring in more characters and a wacky friend for Brad. I don't know. I felt pretty much at a loss about then. Things were kind of unraveling. You could feel it. Yes, the show simply strayed from the core, different worlds concept writers Eisenstock and Mintz had developed. The continual changes to the show format and time slot didn't help matters, making viewers even more lost if they caught up with the show on a new night and time. While the show may have been uneven, sort of lost its way, and was not the best show to come from Gary Marshall or Miller Boyette, it still featured likable lead actors and a great supporting cast that had chemistry on screen and got along off screen as well. In 2006, Donna Pascal looked back on her experience working on Angie. It was a really lovely, non-threatening show. It was very sweet and funny, it was well-written, and people just enjoyed the entertainment of it. Angie was great. It just did wonderful things for me all the way around. I look at it as great fun. I think it was a show people remember 
because it was something they could identify with in that Cinderella kind of world. It's great that Bob and I are still friends and Doris and I are still friends. I value that tremendously. And the humor, as delivered by these actors, still plays as superior to much of the lowbrow humor that passes for comedy on some modern sitcoms. A couple in particular I thought of naming, but why bother? I don't think people will look fondly on shows like these in 40 years, and are unlikely to stand the test of time, as the song says. Nor will the co-stars likely be friends in 40 years. And already much of the humor on these shows has aged poorly. But in another 40 years, a descendant of yours might be browsing through your 5D optical data storage that all media has long since been saved to and get a glimpse of what we were watching a lifetime ago. A show with a simple, timeless Cinderella story, not to mention a theme song they'll find themselves singing all day. Next time on Forgotten TV. This is Jesse Mock, an ex-motorcycle cop injured in the line of duty. Now a police troubleshooter. He's been recruited for a top-secret government mission to ride Street Hawk, an all-terrain attack motorcycle designed to fight urban crime, capable of incredible speeds up to 300 miles an hour and immense firepower. Only one man, federal agent Norman Tuttle, knows Jesse Mock's true identity. The man, the machine... Street Hawk. It's the one I know many have been waiting for. The Man, The Machine, 1985's Street Hawk. Next time on Forgotten TV. A lot of research goes into these podcasts. For each show, I reach out to many more cast and crew members than respond and end up being quoted on the show. There's Newspaper Archive, the IMDb subscription, hosting. You get the idea. Keep in mind, this podcast is still advertising-free and listener-supported. You can support Forgotten TV on Patreon or PayPal and gain access to Forgotten TV Supplemental, additional podcasts that go beyond what is considered in the main show, in addition to full-length conversations with guests like Alan Eisenstock and Larry Mintz. In the next Forgotten TV Supplemental, how would you like to know the story behind ABC's multi-year Still the One campaign you heard clips of in this podcast? Also, even more behind-the-scenes drama from Laverne and Shirley. And did you know I did a documentary on the untold real history of the video rental industry? That's up there, too, as well as sneak previews of the podcast before it's openly posted. Why don't you join us on Patreon? The link is in the show notes. This episode was executive produced by Joshua Driscoll, Will Welton, and Doc Pinko. Thanks to Kenneth Taylor for the DVD used, with producers Julio Capa, Rich Kunkel, Mark Hadley, and Ron. And of course, thanks to all who support at the $1 and $2 levels. 
Forgotten TV is not affiliated with or authorized by ABC, Paramount Studios, Miller Boyette Productions, CBS Studios, Visual Entertainment, or any production company or network involved in the making of any TV show or film mentioned in this podcast. Links to Amazon or affiliate, and as an Amazon affiliate, I earn from qualifying purchases made. Angie and all mentioned series and associated characters are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purposes of review, commentary, and criticism only and are not intended to infringe. This podcast is copyright 2021 Forgotten TV Media. The views and opinions expressed by guests and quoted sources are their own and may not reflect the opinion of Forgotten TV Media, its sponsors, or patrons. This podcast is intended for entertainment purposes only. Information presented is based on a combination of first-hand personal accounts, period news media, books, and website articles. All reasonable effort has been made to fact-check the information presented. However, Forgotten TV Media cannot guarantee the accuracy of every detail included and makes no representations or warranties for the content in this podcast and cannot be held liable for errors or omissions. And I'd like to thank the following YouTube channels for making the audio clips possible. DJ Disco Cat, Jump the Shark, Video Fun Southwest, Ubiquitous Lazar, Periscope Film, Fru Me, 80s and 70s Memories, 10 Again TV, Retro Alexander, Stephen Brandt, Videoholic 50s, 60s, 70s, Apotheon SAK, Sean MC, Vintage Television, BGs, Laverne and Shirley TV Show, Robert C. 2009, Ocean King NY, Maureen McGovern Official, Maureen McGovern Topic, Ruben Gomez, Two Fans, Obscure TV Intros, Movie Clips Classic Trailers, True TV Movies Channel, Geek Music, and Calico Cat Piano. Special thanks to Alan Eisenstock and Larry Mintz for answering all the questions and all the great background information on the show. Thanks to Sharon Spellman for sharing her experiences, Diane Robin for her thoughts, Kit McDonough for sharing her very personal story, Marie McGovern for the great background on the theme song, and a very special thanks to Carol Ita White for being very, very sweet and open with me and sharing her story for the first time. Sources of quotes and background information not given directly to Forgotten TV were obtained from the following websites. Television Obscurities, TV Party, Real Life with Jane, Stars in the House, I Heart Hollywood, TV Tropes, Legacy.com, and numerous period newspaper articles from newspapers.com. And the books, Happier Days by Marley Brandt, The Naked Truth by Jean-Pierre Doliac, Raised by the Stars by Nick Thomas, Unsold TV Pilots by Lee Goldberg. Thank you for listening. Be sure and bookmark Forgotten.tv for all content and links. I am your host, Chris Cooling, and this has been Forgotten TV. Still the one for Angie and Mark.